Recorded live. I would first of all like to say that there are many difficult, challenging, painful, unfortunate things that happen in this world, but there is one truly great, unmistakable, unbesmirchable, totally beautiful thing in this world, and that is watching the transformation of children into high school athletes and high school athletes and the collegiate athletes and collegiate athletes and the professional athletes. There's lots of filthy things that go on around the process, but the actual process itself of a young person deciding that they have a talent and seeking a place to hone and shape that talent and finding other people who have the talent of bringing that talent to fruition through hours of study and suffering and repetition, it is a divinely beautiful thing. That is the genesis of my love of not just the game of football, but the science and art of it. And I am pleased and proud to be joined by others who love that same pursuit. And I see a couple of them have joined me already. I believe I have Gentleman James Coburn with me. Yep. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the one, the only Christian page as well? You got it. woo This is a very exciting time. Now, some people say draft season has begun. Begun? Where have you been? Uh, draft season began in August, people. Um, Was that a hint to my previous tweet just a few minutes ago? <laughs> I I'm just saying, if 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 you think draft season has just begun or has recently begun, you're new to this thing. Uh no. draft season begins I mean, spring ball is sort of like the precursor of draft season. By the time you get to August, by the time you get to position position battles have been hammered out and starting lineups have been submitted and college football's about to be played, that's when draft season begins. That's when, <laughs> you know, area scouts kiss their babies goodbye and hit the you know, the um, Motel 6s and the, well, maybe not Motel 6, hopefully, but the Hampton Inns and the Courtyard Marriotts of America start to be seen by men in windbreakers and men in uh, polo shirts and smartphones and laptops who go from the largest campuses of 38,000, 39,000 undergraduates to campuses with 380, 400 in some cases, I mean, Ali Marpet, ladies and gentlemen, right? Great and small. And the one thing in common, once again, is that singular pursuit of people good enough to play football at the NFL level. And the math is extraordinarily difficult. You have, if you want to count Division Three, Division Two, obviously both FCS and FBS and NAIA, you're talking about by my count, and of course I may have missed a few, but something like 420 some odd uh, football playing institutions in the United States, 418, something like that, somewhere in that number, for depending on who's, you know, dropped or picked up their program again. Uh, UAB will be back in the game soon, so the number will change again, but something like that. And each one of them fields, you know, generally a full lineup. <laughs> you know, take the field of at least 20, 22. 11 on each side, usually. Then a couple of special teamers. 
and then some backups. So when you do that math, pretty soon, you know, you get yourself well into the tens of thousands of prospective student-athletes. And this year we had a couple of junior college guys declare, which is always interesting. Uh, was it three? Were there three junior college guys who declared? Which I think may be a record. I remember um, Adrian McPherson declared direct from junior college after his, you know, peccadillos at Florida State. And there was another kid, a wide receiver, Larry Brackens, who I remember declaring from, was it Lackawanna a few years back? And got in a camp and, you know, washed out eventually. Uh, but it's very rare, you see. I think, was it, is it three junior college guys? I think it might be a record in the same year, which is a little nutty. But there's a lot of athletes. And, frankly, most of them can't do it. Most of them can't. A tiny percentage of them will even be in a camp. Forget make a roster. Forget start. A tiny percentage of them, less than 1% of them, will even get in a camp. So the math is against you. The odds are dramatically against you. Everything is against you being a professional football player. You need to be a special human being, physically, mentally. You need to be wired differently from most people. And finding those people is super hard. And you get fired a lot. A lot of people say, I want to be an NFL scout. Well, how many of you actually sat and talked to an NFL scout? I have for years. Going back to the late 70s, first time an NFL scout spoke to me, I was a child. Well, yeah junior high school, and I wrote to somebody. This is back when people wrote letters to each other, and I wrote to an NFL scout. He said, I'm interested in being an NFL scout. You know, what's it like? You know, he didn't say it sucks, but he said it was very difficult. Uh, he said it spends a lot of time away from his family. He says that his bosses question his work constantly. Uh, he said that half the time he's not sure himself of, you know, what to do about certain players, how to evaluate certain players. It is a super hard thing to do. And so we find ourselves in this rare opportunity. The Senior Bowl is like a smorgasbord, right? It's like a buffet table. If you love good football, you just, mmm, oh, I could slap some of this on my plate. Oh, but I need to leave some room for that. Oh, look at all the, oh. But if I, if I fill up our wide receivers, will there be any room for defensive tackles later? Uh, I, I know... The first time at the Senior Bowl is completely overwhelming. And I believe we've been joined by the one, the only Trevor Sickerman as well. Is that Tampa Bay Trey with us? It is. It is. How are you doing tonight? Oh, it's a magical time of year. It really is. <laughs> it really, really is. I know some people don't get it completely, but this really is one of my favorite times of year. So much is happening. It's so exciting. Um, you know, for me, this is – I've been around football – most of my life, and I've been writing about the NFL draft since 1982, so I know that makes you sound a thousand years old. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, my first article about the about the NFL draft was published in a little uh, weekly local newspaper called the Answer Newspaper in 1982, and the term draftnik was a very new one and only applied to a very small number of people. And my friends and I, I lived in the Navy town, used to ship. Uh, when they, my friends had moved away to, you know, Whidbey Island or wherever part, you know, or wherever part of the country, they'd be sent to, you know, Eglin Air Force Base, wherever it is, shipped away, Navy Town or military town, really. And we'd ship tapes to each other because 
There wasn't ESPN in those days. There wasn't the Internet in those days. So if I wanted to see Hugh Millen, and you're in Washington, luckily my boy out there would, would say, hey, I got some tape of him. I'll ship it to you. Can you ship me some Lawrence Taylor? <laughs> That's how we did it, pre-Internet kids. You guys got it, you guys got it pretty good. You guys yeah, got no, it pretty good. <laughs> we, we, even, we even got a website, Draft Breakdown, which not only gives us game tape, but cuts up the exact player that we want to watch and shows us only their snaps. So you are very right. We are, uh, I well, me, I, I am certainly spoiled in, in the ace that I live in wanting to do the things that I do. Yes. So um, I'm going to ask you guys, particularly, uh, obviously, you, Christian, and then next, after that, you, Trevor. Um, now, how many super, uh, senior bowls is this? If it's your first, then definitely tell me about your, your experience, but... If you have been other times, tell me about how this compares to other times in the past. This is my fourth game I will be going to Saturday and my second week covering, you know, as just a media person. Uh, I didn't – last year I came in on a Wednesday, so I didn't get to really get involved with, uh, like, the media night and talk to all the players and kind of network and everything. But, I mean, it's it's a great experience. I mean, that that pretty much – you could put a bow on it with that, but just getting to meet everybody and, like, you know, you, you have your quote-unquote Twitter friends, uh, you know, that you really get to kind of put a face to and get to talk, and, you know, it's kind of just a good time to to really uh, get together and share some stories, and then, you know, you might get some juicy stories from a scout here and there, and I'm sure we can talk about that later, but, uh, yes, I mean, yeah, my second time, and my first time really kind of getting into like the media and networking area and I can't complain one bit. Yes. It is also football's largest open air job market. Uh, as yes. some of you may have noticed as well. Uh, so sometimes you'll see former position coaches, former coordinators, former, uh, you know, assistant directors of player personnel, all kind of hobnobbing and buying each other drinks. And Hey, remember that time I saved your behind? God, Poor Gil could use a job now. Hey, you know. So, <laughs> but yeah, saw that. And uh, same question to you, Trevor. Uh, is how many times down to beautiful Mobile, and what? How does this compare to your other experiences if you've been other times? So this was actually my first year going down to Mobile, and uh, it was it was quite the experience. Like Christian was like Christian was saying, it's uh, um, it's kind of overwhelming. You have all the people who are in the NFL circle. You have the prospects themselves. You have um, you, you know, the people on Twitter and everywhere where you read their stuff, you're finally meeting them. I was telling everybody the first day, it'd be easier if you guys just, on, on your little uh, media pass name tags, it'd be easier if you just had your Twitter handle and a picture <laughs> of your AV next to it. <laughs> that would make it, that would have made things a lot easier for me. But, uh, no, it was great. It was awesome. Uh, really, like, flew by, to be honest. I get there on Monday, and then all of a sudden it's, it's Thursday night, and we got to drive back. To, to Florida that night, and um, there's just so much that gets crammed into it, and even beyond just going to the practices and getting to watch the practices, uh, like you guys were saying, it, it's it's almost like a business trip the entire time you're awake that you're there, because whether you're out at the, whether you're out getting drinks with somebody or, or in the stands talking about a prospect, sharing, you know, views or stories or whatever it is, you really are networking the entire time and so it really is a great experience uh, if you're somebody who covers the draft uh, in any kind of fashion for any outlet and you want to go to the senior bowl uh, i highly recommend it because um it'll put you in the 
it'll put you in the frying pan real quick. And you kind of got to realize that your time is valuable there. Uh, not only do you have to do your job to make sure you watch the prospects, but you also got to take the time to meet the people you got to meet, uh, shake some hands, uh, exchange some business cards. And But, boy, it's a lot of fun. I know it sounds really high-paced and kind of stressful when I say it like that, but, man, uh, it was a blast. Yes, it is all of those things <laughs> it is, uh, and more. Uh, for me, my first trip, it wasn't such a big deal. I mean, I say there was no Twitter, frankly, uh, obviously, the first time I went down. And there wasn't anything like the kind of media coverage there is now. Uh, USA Today was one of the few national papers that, that in those, and this, this is a fairly early in USA Today's coverage, but I'm talking, I'm about to get a million years old. And you had a few major dailies like Chicago Tribune, New York Times. Uh, obviously, the local papers have always covered it. Uh, so you, know, you, you could see those. But it was nothing like now, nothing like now. There was no Mike Mayock. Uh, Mike Mayock wasn't even doing this bit. Uh, <laughs> Tom McShay was a sophomore at Richmond, uh, at the time. I mean, it's a very different world, people. But Kuiper, different. Kuiper was there. Kuiper was. <laughs> Kuiper's been there for a very, very long time, yes. Um, yes, Kuiper's been there for longer than some of you have been alive, and I remember the earliest days of Kuiper. I remember some of the guys who predated Kuiper, which you guys won't remember, obviously. But for me, you know, the big guy for me was Joe Buxbaum. That was my guy. Um, there were sort of a few different camps in the early, you know, protein, you know, eras, the Jurassic era, whatever you want to call it, of, of this draft stuff. And uh, there was a guy named Jerry Jones, not the guy you're thinking of, but a guy used to put out what's called the um, the drugstore list. And he was a druggist. He was an actual pharmacist. And he used to actually, you know, he, was, he had a couple of drugstores. He was reasonably successful. He would save up his money all year, and then he would spend the football season just going from place to place watching football players. And he would write up the drugstore list. Uh, like I said, Joel Booksbaum, who uh, ended up with Pro Football Weekly. I was from at the Arcushes for the first time uh, years and years ago. Uh, there were only a few. I mean, it really was. It's a very small little community in those days. Gary Horton, the guy who gave, who started the War Room, one of the first draft sites, who was the guy that actually gave McShay his start, uh, met him many, many years ago. My mentor was a guy named Steve Martin. Uh, not Once again, not the Steve Martin you're thinking, but a different Steve Martin who was the guy that brought me into this as an actual paid individual doing this like a professional. And it was a tiny little community, and I saw it grow and grow and grow. Scott Wright, I remember meeting Scott back in the day. Um, Walter was a couple of years after that of Walter football. Um, I mean, this is when you know Dane was probably in high school. Um, you know, this is the way he's back. Uh, if that, he might have even been, God, he might have been in elementary school. Uh, Rob Rang was probably in high school, maybe, maybe, maybe he might have been less in high school. I mean, this is, whew. but we've seen the spectacle it is today. And of course, all the other stuff, all the, you know, elbow and shoulder rubbing and back slapping, that goes back forever and ever. But believe it or not, people, at the time, the senior bowl wasn't the big one. <clears throat> I'm old enough to remember when senior bowl was maybe second, third on the list amongst the postseason all-star games. Shrine game used to be seen as sort of a bigger one. Hula, right? The Hula Bowl, for those who remember the Hula Bowl. That was a big one. One, because you got to go to Hawaii. Um, and they got a lot of the top-tier talent back in the old, day, old days. Um, 
and then the late lamented blue gray shrine game, which is where blue gray shrine, sorry, blue gray game, which is where I first saw Mike Mayock actually was at the blue gray game as a player. Yeah, I, I scouted Mike Mayock. That's how old I am. Uh, oh wow! <laughs> yeah, suck it, kids. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, uh, Howie Long was the MVP of that game. In fact, uh, Howie Long and Mike Mayock have known each other for years and years. Both Philadelphia area kids. And Howie Long made a huge impression on me because this is, Villanova wasn't on TV in 1979, just in case you're wondering, people. And uh, so I hadn't seen I'd heard Howie Long, you know, how he was the best white defensive lineman since Randy White, basically, is what everybody was saying about him. And uh, it's like, oh, wow, i got to see this guy. So I didn't get a chance to see him the whole year until the East-West Shrine game. And he was a monster. He was unstoppable, unblockable. Un- I mean, he was the MVP which you rarely see defensive linemen being, but he, they couldn't do anything with him. And he even blocked the, um, though you're not supposed to be rushing the, um, uh, the place kicker, he actually blocked what would have been a game-winning field goal uh, to secure the victory for the North in the East-West Shrine game of that year. Bobby Humphrey was my top running back that year. That's right. That's how old I am. Marlon Humphrey's dad, I scouted. Yeah, Look at that. Suck it, Look kid. Look at that. <laughs> yes. Oh, there's a bunch of dads that uh, I've scouted. I've scouted Ed McCaffrey. I've scouted a bunch of dads. So I've been doing it that long. But, oh, now we have it. Here it is. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. Um, another of my favorite people, Shane Alexander. Now we have, we have our triumvirate. So, Shane how many? I mean, obviously, you are an Alabaman. Uh, the Shrine game means something a little different. Not Shrine. I keep saying Shrine. Senior Bowl means something a little bit different to you because it's proprietary, right? So tell me a little bit about your experience with the Senior Bowl and where do you put it in your mind as you are figuring out what you think of players? Yeah, yeah. First, it's good to be on. Uh, we haven't talked in too long, man. So yeah. I appreciate you reaching out to me. It's good to be on with uh, Trevo. What's up, Trev? What's going on, Shane? Long time no talk, right? Yeah, man. Uh, but no, the Senior Bowl is second year for me uh, to be at the game. First year I've actually ever attended as a scout for the last two years. Crazy stuff has happened, coincidentally. So this is my first year to scout it. Um, I thought it was great. I, it's one of the most, like, wild rides I've ever been on. It's, you know, 17-hour days. Um, it's worth every It's worth every minute. Um, I think – so in some respects, what you watch on the field is secondary to the information you pick up off of it. Um, networking has been great, and, and just kind of seeing where other peers of mine are at, uh, where you know real scouts are at, hearing hearing rumors about what some you know higher ups are thinking, and just being in the culture is really good. So, you know, I had high hopes coming in, and this week exceeded it. And I don't think this was the greatest Senior Bowl class. There was 27 guys that decided not to come or had to drop out uh, because of injury. So I don't think it was the best group that they could have assembled, but it was a really quality group. And, uh, you know, for anybody listening that is thinking about attending as a fan or trying to get credentials, I would, I would definitely recommend it. Indeed. It is – there's nothing quite like it. It is a combination of, like we said, sort of a, you know, an enormous open-air bazaar for – Sports media, sports, it's sport itself, and people who want to be associated with it. It is a great, it's like the greatest tweet up of all time for draft Twitter ever. And of course, hey, on top of that, there's practices at actual football. 
you know, as a nice little bonus. So it's got a little bit of everything. And, of course, if you like yeah, barbecue, I was, yeah, go ahead. I, I, was, I, I was telling somebody uh, the other day um, when they asked, like, how does it feel? Or what's it like that the game is in Mobile? And I actually said to them, I loved it because out of any place that they could hold this game in the entire country, because, like you said, the Senior Bowl is big enough now to where they could hold this game in the L.A. Coliseum, you know. Yep. They continue to hold it in Mobile, Alabama, and it brings the entire draft world, the most famous people, the, you know, Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport, uh, down to the nobodies like me and Shane. Uh, it brings us all <laughs> together in one town at one time to, you know, all focus Shane, on the same thing. like, speak for yourself, pipsqueak. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, we're all just a bunch of nobodies trying to be somebody's. It's great, though. I love that it's in Mobile. I really do. So that, I, I just wanted to say that while you were talking about it there, that uh, just to know that it's so cool that it, it is in that city because it really does almost bring you into a whole different world uh, where you're seeing people that you never thought you'd ever see and they're sitting across from the bar from you or from the bleachers for you or whatever. Um, and it, it's in this small little town in Alabama, so it's really cool. Yeah, I remember one time at Rutgers Pro Day, um, Mr. Tannenbaum and I shared a moment. <laughs> so there's all kinds of odd little things that happen when you do this stuff. Uh, Jim Coburn, you are here to actually make sense of some of this because there's a lot of excitement and emotion and, you know, giddy little girlishness that surrounds the senior ball. And it's okay. There's nothing wrong with being a giddy little girl. The first time I went, I was, you know, a grown man and been in a war, uh, but I was a giddy little girl when I first went to Mobile. So what things can someone actually take away once the in the cold light of day, when the emotion is gone and the taste of dreamland or wherever your barbecue spot would be has finally left your mouth, what should you actually take away? What things can you keep and use in the evaluation process, Jim? Well, obviously measurements, you know, height, weight, arm length, hand size, uh, stuff like that, but also – uh, personality kind of checks for guys. Uh, not, I mean, some scouts actually give some of the players, you know, actual tests to take in terms of like figuring out personality and factoring that into things. Uh, some some teams in particular like guys that you know get into fights and are feisty. Other teams don't like that. They don't like guys that are fighting constantly because they find it to be a distraction, you know, on their team. Um, not every team's like that, but there are some teams that you know don't don't really like guys that are constantly fighting. You know, Josh Norman, you know, guys like that. So, you know, they they're looking for guys who fit the who fit kind of like their team personality, and that is something you can take away from these types of events. Uh, and that's really about it. I mean, obviously, there's lots of guys who catapult sports has been adding in you know little chips and stuff and this and this, things like that which is interesting data in itself, but it's also about one year, two years worth of data, you know, like so there's no, there's no real standard for comparison, obviously. Well, I mean, you can just go, well, he, he had the fastest in pads type of thing, which is great, but like, there's really nothing to, again, there's really nothing to compare it to. Like you can't compare it to the last 10 senior bowls. So it's really hard to really take away anything from that other than just kind of a, uh, you know, a ter- you know, cool term, I guess, in terms of stuff like that. But I think for the most part, the biggest thing you can take away is you actually get a sense of how tall they are, how big they are, uh, their measurements, uh, their personality. Those are kind of the concrete things that you can take away from it. 
My only worry with the senior bowl in general is that a lot of times the guys go down there and they haven't watched the tape on any of the guys. Like they just kind of go in blind, which not everybody does, but some people do. Some do it. Some even you, brag about it. Yeah. Uh, you end up, it, it, you know, again, a lot of times people don't realize it, but a lot of your first impressions of players can really bias you. Even when you go back and watch the film, you know, you can kind of go, wow, I met him at the Senior Bowl, and wow, he looks really good on tape, when in reality it's just because of that you had a positive experience and then it led to the film. You start to go, you know, yeah, he has this problem, but I met him. He's a really hard worker. You know, he can, you know, fix this sort of thing. And sure, everybody, again, everybody wants to have this sort of positive outlook, like these guys are going to translate. All these guys are going to translate, but that isn't always the case. So it's it's sometimes trying to separate you know, the objective stuff with the sub- subjective stuff, uh, which is what most people try to do anyways, is trying to get the bias out and just actually focus on, um, you know, on the concrete stuff. And that that's the biggest thing with the Cedar Bowl, at least to me, is the concrete stuff. And some of the, again, it, it, if you meet a guy and you get a sense of leadership, and you know, intangible kind of stuff, that, that's always great. Uh, it's just to put that in proper, uh, proper perspective, I guess, when it comes to those types of things. Right. Well, I remember watching Russell Wilson at the Senior Bowl, and it was a box check. Like, everybody treated him like he was the man, immediately. Even some of the coaching staff, like, they treated, you could see they treated him differently. They thought of him almost as a colleague. While they spoke to the other quarterbacks like they were kids, you could tell, I mean, part of it's because Russell Wilson was, I mean, that's, that's how he presents himself. He comes across as a guy you should respect immediately. <laughs> and it, that's what he got. He got immediate respect from all of the other players and even some of the other coaches. Some of the guys, you know, would you could see how they talked to some of the quarterbacks. They're like, okay, okay, let me explain this to you. While with Russ, was like, hey, I see what you're doing there. Tweak this. And that would be like, you know what I mean? Like there wasn't a sense of, oh, God, let me show you how you got to do this. You could see that. And so that was kind of a cool thing to see how differently they approached Russell Wilson and every other quarterback that was there. You could see that gap in terms of how coaches thought of him that were working with this, you know, the staff that was working with the other quarterbacks just basically looked at him as a different guy from all the other guys. That was, that was cool. So I'll come back to you, Shane. Just we'll start with physical first. I mean, just physically how different a guy might be. Who are guys that struck you differently, having seen them now on the hoof, than tape or television or anything else? Like who was bigger or smaller or just different? You know, whatever it was, a guy. This is oh, this is not quite what I was expecting. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you'll start with O.J. Howard. Um, I, I know you can say, well, that's the obvious you know, guy that, that I would say or that anybody would say, but like the way that he looked in person. Um, you know, in shorts and T-shirt and then also in pads. You know, watching him from the stands, he was the most physically imposing player on the field either side of the ball. He just had a phenomenal week. He was a cut above above everybody. And to see that um, when you want him to be that way, you know, it was, it was impressive. Another guy that struck me uh, that's not so obvious, there were a couple. Uh, Amara Darba from Michigan, you know, at weigh-ins, he looked a lot more impressive than I had thought. And and when he walked across the stage, I was like, okay, this is a guy that he looks built. He looks put together. He's got some nice tape. I'm going to pay attention to him this week. And um, you know, I thought he he did uh, – he, I thought he had a good week. Another guy that um, 
that I was extremely impressed with, with just how he looked, um, was uh, Tanoa Passigno from Villanova. You know, he's definitely still raw, but just you can see in his physique, like, there's a lot there. I think he's a lot um, a lot more raw than, like, an Ezekiel Anza was coming out of, uh, of college. But he's a guy that I think teams are going to love, especially teams like the Bengals that, that like their defensive ends to be longer anyway. And so those are a couple. And then lastly, Matt Day is from NC State. You know, he's probably a day three guy, but he's impressive. He's built like a tank, but he doesn't have body fat on him. Uh, and he had a really nice week of practice. So just like to get to see some of these smaller guys or, or guys outside of maybe your market you watch on TV every week, to see those guys in person, uh, you know, it changes how you think about them a little bit. It, it can't, you can't help but be influenced by what you see. Um, you know, a guy like Zach Benner shows up. You know, he's huge, but, you know, there's a, he's cutting down weight heavy. There's a nice article put out today about him, uh, about the diet that he's on and the goal that he's trying to get to. Uh, so there's some good context, but just he's not a finished product yet. So, yeah, he's a big guy, but you see him up close. He's nowhere near the, the physique he needs to be at. And so there's one that is kind of on the on the other side of things. But um, there's some physical dudes this week in Mobile. There's a lot of impressive guys. And same question to you, Christian. Who are some of the guys that, whether it be positive or negative, were just physically different from what you were expecting? I, I mean, I completely agree with the O.J. Howard. I mean, some schools, you know, will kind of pump up the, the heights and weights of the guys and make them more intimidating. But when O.J.'s pretty much six foot, you know, 250 pounds, and, man, just seeing him on media night, I mean, seriously looking just straight up at him. I mean, I'm, I'm only about six foot even, but still. And quick side note, I played O.J. Howard in basketball in high school. I'm an Alabama guy, so – this is like a three-hour trip for me, so no big deal. Uh, sorry for the travel expenses that you all may have to pay. But uh, I'm sitting here staying with a buddy of mine and just sitting in his guest room, so you all can hate me later for it. But I played O.J. Howard in basketball, and he played for a – You dominated him. You, you killed him, right? You just flushed well, him all night long. Well, 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 we'll let you be the judge of it, but uh, I was uh, – I got a steal. And this was, like, my first start in, like, ninth grade. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm dribbling down. Got the steal, dribbling down the court. And I'm about to go up for a layup, and I see this huge dude right behind me. And this is before, like, OJ. I mean, like, there was some buzzing. But, you know, this is small OJ, you know, 6'2", 200-pound OJ. And so I'm going up for a layup, and then out of nowhere, I see this huge dude comes out, pretty much tackles me. And so I get up, I make both free throws, and just stare him down the rest of the court. But I always tell the story because it's like, yeah, O.J. Howard tackled me in high school in basketball. And so I always like to tell that story to people. And I mean, I'm, if there's some people listening to that that know me close, they're probably tired of hearing Christian say that. But, uh, but anyway, I, speaking of tight ends, just sticking on O.J. Howard, um, Gerald Everett, the local guy from South Alabama here, you know, he's playing at yep. home stadium, he measured in at 6'2", 227, which is a lot smaller than I thought he would. Uh, that There was a, a, a scout in front of me, and I said that out loud. He turned around. He's like, yeah, you're not the only one disappointed at that. So when there was kind of a teetering between, uh, you know, wide receiver and tight end for him, you know, there's some areas that he needs to work on blocking just technique-wise. Maybe the 6'2", 227 kind of, hey, you're going to be a wide receiver now. And so, uh, so that was so one that kind of – You turned out to be Evan Ingram, basically. Yeah, pretty much. But I don't know if we knew, like, ever it was going to be Evan Ingram 
you know, this week, really. But uh, And then Everett didn't even practice, I guess, yesterday. But I think he's going to try to play in the game Saturday. But that was one that kind of surprised me. One that wasn't surprising was uh, Donnell Pumphrey from San Diego State. You know, everybody knows him as the little guy. And if there's really going to be a spot for him in the NFL, you know, 5'8", 169 pounds. So he didn't even hit the 170 threshold there. But – and what stinks for him, I know you're talking about the weigh-ins, and we can go in more detail about – you know, their playing style and everything. He has such good vision in between the tackles, and it's unfortunate that he may not even get that opportunity in the NFL. I mean, just on film, you can see it. And when you're an all-time leading FBS rusher, you know, that's not a fluke. You know, I mean, you've been doing it for <laughs> such a long time. And, oh, yeah, it, he didn't get it, lucky. It, he didn't get yeah, lucky yeah. for 47 straight games. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, go tell a scout that, and they might tell you something else. But, anyway, it's, I mean, that was one that was kind of we knew – um, but and he had, he, had a, he had a decent week of practice too. But those are two that you know once Everett stood out to me, and then Pumphrey kind of yeah kind of confirmed his smaller measurables for the running back position. Sure. And same question to you, Trevor. Who were the guys that were the most different from what you expected to see? Could be positive, could be negative, but just different. Um, well, I, you know, those two, those two guys named a lot of the ones that would kind of we were all thinking when, when we saw the measurables. But, uh, you know, measurables are nothing more than, uh, I guess, like hints to what you see on tape, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not about how tall a guy is. It's about how he uses the length. You know, it's not about um, the drops that he has. It's, it, it could be about a hand size thing or whatever. Um, so that's, I mean, that's what we use measurements for. And I, like the, the biggest, um, I guess shock moment for me was seeing how small Trent Taylor and Ryan Switzer really are. Like it, we think of these, we think of these football players a lot of times as just these superhuman athletes. Both of those guys are smaller and way less than me. And like, it's just, it was so, it was so weird to see that in person. Um, but again, that has to do with what their game is. And so uh, you, you like to see, during practice, obviously, you get the official measurements, but then during these drills, you're hoping that you see that they can get the most out of the measurements that they have. And so, yeah, Ryan Swister and Trent Taylor are never going to be guys that you're going to throw fade routes to in the end zone. But in practice, you know, if they have shorter if they have shorter legs or um, just a shorter body frame in general, they should be more explosive, more precise in it. So those are the things you want to see. And both of those guys were. Uh, one of the biggest surprises to me, Along with Gerald Everett, who had, who was, yeah, like Chris had said, came in smaller than we thought, but also had like baby hands, like barely above eight inch hands, um, which was, yeah, I did not expect that. But another one who came in with really small hands was Texas A&M's Josh Reynolds, and I've watched Reynolds make some really nice catches, uh, not only like through contact, but he's had a couple of one-handed catches here and there, and I did not expect him to have you know sub nine inch hands and. So when that came in with measurements, I thought to myself, "Wow, were there were there some you know some drops on his tape that I missed that uh, might have explained this or anything like that?" But then during the week, as I got to watch him in practice, he really I think did a nice job of, of making you remember that those small hands aren't really that much of a hindrance to him. If he had bigger hands, would it help? Yeah, sure. But this is a guy that still makes a lot of great catches, a lot of great catches through contact in the air at the high point. You know all that kind of stuff, and then yeah, my my last one is just to to build off of what Shane said with Tano Passano, um, coming in as that big of a guy, 
you wonder how well he can use leverage to his advantage because we know it's a big deal in the trenches. But um, And we did see him struggle a little bit with that just because it's, it's, it's hard to get your body down that low when you're that big, and that's why there's a concern for it. But something that was a positive to him, I think, is that when he was engaging offensive linemen, even when, you know, maybe his first or, or second step or move didn't get by the lineman and he was able to lock Passanio up a little bit, his limbs and his body was just so long that as long as Passanio kept working and wiggling, most of the time he was able to get away from it because it's just so hard to really lock that guy up. So I know these aren't uh, the best offensive linemen uh, that we're going to see in the NFL, but some of them are are guys that are going to be picked within the first, um, first two rounds. So, I, I saw him do a nice job of, of I guess, complementing his length in that way, in a way that we don't normally think of. So those probably be the guys that that yes, that uh, that I took note of when it came to measurables, both negative and positive. Excellent. And the thing that I love about Ryan Switzer, and yeah, I knew he wasn't going to be big. I think anybody who's familiar with him, all, I, and unfortunately there wasn't a lot of contact, but. I love how well he fights through contact for a guy his size. If you watch him as a return guy, or even when he catches sometimes a wide receiver screen, look at how many big tackles he breaks. He breaks way more tackles than a lot of the bigger receivers in this guy. Small but not weak. So let's get into the actual practices. Shane, practices are just that. They are practices. They're not games. They're, they're, they're practices. It's a chance to see a guy do a drill and then, then install. We get to see who picks up on certain things. In terms of the most impressive players and I guess also the least impressive players, who stood out to you in terms of how quickly they picked up some of the things that are being shown? And when things got live, who seemed to really understand how best to put into use the things they were being asked to do? Did you lose Shane already? No, I'm sorry. I had the phone. Oh, okay. No. So I'll start with least impressive. Um, I thought, you know, Montrevious Adams, he's, a, you know, he's an Auburn kid. His tape is really hit and miss. I thought he had a yep. terrible week in skills. Um, and, I, and I think the people that were high on him because he has those pop plays kind of came to the realization, okay, he's not who we, who we need him to be. Um, you know, I thought another guy that, that had a really bad week with Danny Isidore from Miami. Um, he was just hugging dudes in one-on-one drills with, with defensive linemen, and and that showed up. And I, I mentioned those two first because I watched OL and DL more than the other positions this week in one-on-ones. Um, a guy that I was impressed with in context a lot was Antonio Garcia. Um, he's not a finished product. He's not baby Tyron Smith. That was you know people saying that a little bit hyperbole. Uh, there's a lot to work with. Um, you know, Eric Flowers went, you know, what, ninth overall to the Giants, and that doesn't mean that he should go ninth overall, but he is <laughs> – And neither should Eric Flowers have ever gone that high either. But sorry, yeah, go ahead. Right. That's what I'm saying. You know, just because there's one mistake doesn't mean you should make two. But he's a guy that just I, I was really impressed with and I think is going to be around through tackle because a coaching staff that trusts that they can coach him up, uh, they're going to really like him a lot. Um Another guy that just really impressed me this week was was Evan Ingram from Ole Miss. Watching him play, you know, that slot tight end position at Ole Miss, I wondered how big he really was. But almost to the T, if these measurements that we got were correct, 
he matches up with Jordan Reed um, very closely. And so we know that was succeeding in the NFL. And I think in a tight end class, it's got some guys, um, you know, like in Joku, you got, you know, you've got Hodges, you've got Leggett. Evan Ingram should be recognized. Um, and then another guy that I was impressed with, and I'll mention him, I, I, like Nate, I like what I saw from Nate Peterman in context. Now, is he going to be a top four quarterback taken? No. Should he go in the first round? No. But if you're needing a, a future contextual starter, you know, a spot starter or a guy that you want to see what can, you know, if, if, if the Redskins want to move on from Kirk Cousins in a year and see what they had in, in Nate Peterman, I wouldn't I would They could get another Kirk Cousins. Awesome. Yeah. If, 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 if you believe in the 90% rule, like if you can get 90% of Kirk Cousins out of Nate Peterman for 20 less million dollars, that's not a bad downgrade. Um, right. you can invest elsewhere. So, again, con- context He's not a first-round quarterback, but I, but I was impressed. Uh, and then the last guy, just very quickly, um, you know, I, I thought that that Obi um, from UConn did a great job. Oh, Obi Melafonwu! The world has finally Mel- discovered Obi Melafonwu after all these many months. Yes, like he had he had a great week, and uh, and I don't know if he's played himself in the first-round consideration because there's more work to do with tape and also the combine and getting numbers. But he was absolutely the top defensive back here. Everybody was talking about him. Um, he had a great week. And, like, you know, a lot of these guys like J. Ron Curse that's built like 6'4", 220, the Josh Harvey Clemens, is they can't move. They're just physical guys. And they look – he can really, really move. And I was impressed. Yeah, basically, the other guys are like Patrick Watkins was. Right, sure. And this guy is he's, – he's, he's yoked up. He can, he's got twitch in his hips. He's not stiff. Uh, I think he can play man coverage at that size, and I really like what I saw from him. Yeah, yeah I, I'm glad that this – I almost wonder if, you know, I thought it still feel funny because I was really big on him, and then now I think people have maybe gone too far, but um, <laughs> I was glad that people finally, at least, you know, because I, I, it's like with Paxton Lynch, I was like, hey, you guys should take a look at Paxton Lynch, and finally people saw it, but like, they went, that's like, okay, now, now slow down, or maybe see too much. Uh but yes, it was um it's fun it was to odd. see people sort of wake up to a guy like that. Yeah. I mean you have a six foot four, two hundred and nineteen pound safety and it's it's like nobody saw him, you know, and you it's like I guess, I know it's a Yukon, but I'm just saying like nobody saw this guy. Well it's not like invisible on tape though. I mean if you saw a Yukon even once, I guarantee you saw Obi Melafon when we make a play. Yeah, plays plural, in fact. But it was cool to see, you know. And I was glad to see people sort of wake up to Hassan Reddick. Like, I don't know what he had to do to get people to change. I guess the senior bowl. He's been really good for years, multiple years. And somehow it took the senior bowl, I guess, for people to wake up to how good Hassan Reddick is. He's been doing this for years, people. You know, not recently, not just this year, not just last year. He's got two plus years, two and a half years of good days. The senior bowl is magical for some people. Um, so now we are getting into the – you mentioned O-line, D-line. Uh, did anybody watch – anybody else watch a lot of O-line, D-line, uh, either you, Christian, or you, Trevor? Yeah, I, I watched a few. Um, we kind of allotted different uh, perspectives, like position-wise, each day of the week. Right. Um, but when I was watching O-line, D-line, I think Taylor Moten – if you want to put the phrase on uh, Taylor Moten, the Western Michigan tackle, if you want to put the phrase, who made the most money this week, I think he's one of your guys that could probably be in your top five. 
pretty much virtually didn't really lose many reps in my mind, if we're going to do that. But he he's had a lot of experience at right tackle, and I think that really goes to show, like, his maybe his immediacy at the NFL, you know, his rookie season. And, I mean, just his powerful hands, a good enough extension to really keep defenders off his chest. I, I watched a pretty hefty amount of film coming in of him uh, this week, and he has a little bit of choppy footwork, but it doesn't, to me, it didn't really show up as much as I thought it would, uh, as, a, as a weakness, I guess you could say. And uh, But I, th- I think he had a pretty good week overall uh, from offensive line perspective. And just going off what Shane said, Garcia, yeah, he had a ton of buzz coming in. I mean, like you said, first-round buzz. And, and he had a pretty decent week, um, but his, his first punch is my favorite attribute he has. I mean, just his long arms, and I forgot what the measurables were, but uh, his just initial punch to really get the the edge rushers off balance is a very one of his best attributes. I think he has. Got it. And Trevor, which position groups did you focus on, and and who stood out to you when practice actually began? Um, probably, I probably watched wide receiver the most. Um, I guess because. Um, I just love they the are the sexy ones. <laughs> yeah, they are yeah, fun to watch. That's what I'm all about, obviously, sexy football. Um, I, I, Josh Reynolds, I think, I think was far and away the best guy this week. Um, I don't. I I read a couple like mainstream media people saying that like Cooper Cup had one of the best weeks that they've ever seen, and like I don't. I I have, I have no idea what. I have no idea which Senior Bowl they were watching because uh, it wasn't the Senior Bowl that I was watching with Josh Reynolds on the field. Um, but I thought he, I thought he played really well. Uh, my number two guy uh, coming out of the week would have been Zay Jones from East Carolina. Uh, I think he, he, he really impressed me the most on day three yesterday because they just had him running red zone drills and through pass interference here and there. And even with guys in off coverage, press coverage, whatever it was, he was cooking me. So I was definitely a fan of his coming out. He would have been my number two guy. Um, I, I'd have Cup as my number three receiver, but I way more dialed down than everybody else. Uh, I'd probably have Ryan Swister right after that. And then kind of near the end there, Amar Darbo and then Chad Williams from Grambling State would probably be my guys uh, that, that I really liked there. I, I was super impressed with Williams after the first day because in one of the first drills that they were doing with one-on-ones in the corners, they had him run, uh, I think, it, a curl route, a drag route, and then a just a go route and he got catches on every single one of them he got separation on every single one of them and then the last one was going up against uh Demonte Casey in press coverage for a touchdown over the top of him which is impressive because I think Casey is a, a very physical player and so to get the better of him doing something like that was was pretty impressive to me uh Darbo just to touch on what Shane said uh, I like him um he's how do I say this? He's he's a very natural, I guess, wide receiver. He just you, you watch how he jumps up and he catches the ball. You can just tell he's a very natural wide receiver. But I I wouldn't say that he's precise. I watched him, you know, round off a lot of his routes this week. You know, it's not as and, and to be honest, being on the field with Trent Taylor and and Ryan Swister can sometimes <laughs> it's hard to look twitchy next to those two. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. But um, I did think that you know he was he was kind of round in his routes a lot more than he should have. Um, and that's not to say that he didn't have catches this week. He did, but I would probably put Chad Williams above him um, in terms of performances from this week. 
just because of that. So. Yeah, so Chad Williams was a guy that was another guy that I was glad people, you know, sort of woke up to or, or got exposure to. I had the pleasure of seeing him live a couple of times and, of course, obviously uh, on tape. And he's one of the best uh, receivers in the conference, in the Southwest Lake Conference I've seen in several years. Uh, he's up there with Jamar Johnson um, from his days back at uh, Southern U a few years back. And I mean, yeah, for some reason, a lot of SWAC receivers get overlooked. I was glad that Chad Williams did get the opportunity to play in the, to, uh, to play in the senior bowl. He's been good, also again, for several years. He's been the top target there for a few years in a row. He's got enough size. He's always been a, a real technician. He works extremely hard in his game. He has good hands. And I think he's going to test well. Um, I'm hoping he gets a combine invitation. I think if he, I think if he wasn't going to get one prior to that, I think this might have, you know, maybe pushed him up uh, to a chance where he, where he will. And let's see. So did anybody watch any of the other drills that weren't mentioned, uh, any of the things other than O-line, D-line, and one-on-ones between DBs and wide receivers? Well, I think if we're going to go with the guys that really caught our eye, I don't think if we uh, don't mention Hassan Reddick from Temple, I think we're doing the Senior Bowl a disfavor. I mean, I think really yeah. he had one of the best weeks all week. Um, and like I said, I've only come here, you know, this is only my second year of seeing all of the practices full on, but I mean, he's one of the more impressive performances just based on what he was evaluated as coming in. You know, pretty much Temple was like, we're just going to stand you up, put you on the outside unless you rush the passer. And then when he came into the Senior Bowl, he was more used as an inside linebacker. And I think just showing that kind of versatility and the ability to almost accept the coaching and just be really good at it, at, at the role that they put him in, Within the span, you know, within the span of a few days, I think really goes to show. But I mean, like I said, he brings that pass rushing ability, and uh, really every rep that I saw him go in, whether it was a pass rush rep against the running backs, which wasn't even fair to the running backs at all, but even seeing like you know tight ends going over the middle, or you know running backs going out for passes, or even some picking up some slot guys from the wide receivers, like he was there, and I don't know what he's going to test that. Uh, from a 40 perspective, but I mean, I think based on what he came in as and what he was used as a temple, I think that versatility uh, really speaks volumes for him. And though he might be under the, the threshold of 6'1", you know, 237 pounds, which is still pretty big in my mind, but I really think he had a solid week. And if, like, like I said with Taylor Moden, if you want to say who made the most money this week, I think Hassan Reddick of Temple tops that list. I agree with that. I would agree. Yeah. Well, and once again, I'm glad that, you know, the, the world is uh, – admittedly, he didn't do a lot of some of the things that you saw. He did do some of those things at Temple. But for the most part, they – you know, they, the old saying is he, he was a guy that showed he knew there was going to come here and stick him. Um, but he didn't, he didn't do a lot of those things often. But he did some of those things. Right. And he was terrific against the run throughout his career at Temple. A terrific, obviously, pass rusher. And in the times they did drop him, they didn't have him covering like slot receivers in his days at Temple, but he covered running backs and he covered tight ends and did a pretty good job of it. Uh, I would say better than probably three quarters of the guys I'd watched who, you know, 
linebackers covering people is something that you can't avoid altogether. <laughs> you know, at some point your linebackers have to be able to cover, if, even when they're guys that you think of as basically pass rushers. At some point they have to be able to show they can at least do it a little bit. And he has shown that in his time at Temple. He just hadn't been asked to do it in, you know, with everybody watching him against slot receivers, you know, in one-on-one. Yeah. But he clearly can do it, obviously. Jim Coburn. Clearly, and of course we all have, have seen and heard the, you know, the philosopher poet Alan, a.k.a. Bubba Chuck Iverson, you know, from Chesapeake, Virginia, Bethel High School, another one of my 757 brethren, and a terrific football player who I got to watch play quarterback at Bethel, took Bethel in 1993 to a state championship and won it the first in Bethel High School's football history, in fact, was won under the quarterbacking of Allen Iverson. But uh, the you, his famous refrain, of course, is we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not the game I would die for, but practice. Here I am supposed to be the franchise player. We're not talking about a, not a game, not a game, but practice. We talk about practice. So clearly, we are talking about practice. But, Jim, and what you do and the way you do it, clearly, you know, practice is what it is. But what things can you actually learn from watching players in practice? Hmm, only you well, I mean, for one, you can figure out the guys that have soft hands, hard hands, you know, guys that have natural hands, guys who don't a lot of times. Soft hands, you don't really hear any. I mean, you you don't really hear a clapping sound. It, you know, not very uh, loud. Uh, but and really, that's just it isn't something where I actually like developed a metric. I'm like, well, you know, loud hands, soft hands, type of thing. But it, it is something where you, you just want a, a, if your guy's gonna be a wide receiver, you want a guy who is catching the ball uh, easily. You know, with without much of an issue. I mean, stuff like that you can definitely get. You can also, I think, as a tool with, with film study, because the biggest thing for me is a lot of the guys who did things in Mobile well are things that they showed on tape. Uh, it's just it's just that it wasn't, like, focused in on. So there were a lot of guys who had great weeks, don't get me wrong. It's just that there's a lot of stuff on tape that kind of, you know, evens uh, stuff out in terms of, like, how you view them and how you evaluate them uh, in terms of sort of one-on-one situations. Uh, and then you also have guys, at least to me, when it comes to the running back position and, and tight end as well. You know, we just mentioned O.J. Howard. You know, O.J. Howard is a guy that played at Alabama, uh, with which didn't really feature him that much uh, for whatever reason. You know, obviously they, <laughs> they want their guys to block more because, uh, you know, run, running back heavy kind of offense. So, to actually see a guy like that getting used more often uh, in receiving drills and those types of drills is really helpful to kind of get a good idea of of what they can do, you know, with the ball in their hands and stuff like that. Because O.J. Howard, to me, over the last, you know, three years, has always been a big tease in that, you know, you would yeah. see these, these really big splash plays here and there, along with just kind of, Average blocking this, you know, this year in particular is probably his best year as a blocker. Uh, but you know, just things here and there that not like a power blocker, more of a ZBS kind of style blocker, you know, in terms of that sort of stuff. So like you get you get to see Howard actually 
use it in receiving drills, so you get a sense of that. Also, a running back, a guy like Devion Smith from Michigan. This is a guy that you watch the film at Michigan, and you're like, okay, this is just a power back uh, kind of guy because that was just how he was used. And then he goes, you know, obviously he's at the Shrine game, which is the game I actually went to, and, you know, he was crazy good in receiving drills. And you get a sense of, okay, this guy probably wasn't as impactful, you know, catching the football. Uh, but now we actually get to see him do it. So maybe he can, you know, have that extra element to his game uh, in terms of, you know, as a receiving back. Because, you know, NFL teams in general are looking for guys that can do everything, you know, pass protect, catch the football, and run between the tackles. But when you see a guy like that in those types of drills, you can you can extrapolate a few things here and there from that, that he has soft hands, that he had, you know, that he is a natural receiver, so you can kind of add those things to it. And then the last part is, at least with guys who play the edge position, linebackers, guys that we really don't know what they are. You know, back in the Senior Bowl I went to in 2014, you know, they had Marcus Smith there, who was a bit of a tweener size-wise. And it was kind of like, okay, what are we going to do with you? Let's put you in linebacker drills and have you do coverage responsibilities. And he just got burned like crazy. And that, the same thing was on tape as well. But it's just, but if there was a linebacker who rushed the passer a lot and or like Hassan Riddick, like we were just talking about, and, you know, we kind of go, all right, we want to make you a linebacker versus a, you know, a, a pure edge rusher, you know, instead of a 3-4 th- outside linebacker, which I think he could do, but I, I, I think teams would prefer him as an inside linebacker. Now let's see him in coverage. Let's see him do more inside linebacker uh, type of responsibilities, and you can – get a sense of that as well at these types of events. So it's just a lot of those type, types of things, especially DBs at safety and in man coverage and, you know, just seeing what their experience is of all these different types of things. I think that's probably the biggest thing is just to see these guys uh, a lot like the combine as well. You get to see players who didn't do certain things or, or didn't do certain responsibilities and you actually get to see them do it and see how well they perform at least in one week. You know, to kind of get a good idea of can they make that transition quickly? Is it something that's going to be hard? Is it going to be easy? You know, those types of questions. And sticking with the the Shrine game call-ups, one, how do you think your your guys, the guys that got called up, did? You mentioned one of them in Devion Smith. And two, were there guys that you think should have gotten the call who did not? Oh, sure. Uh, You know, Devion Smith, I I didn't actually see his performance, but I, I did feel like at the Shrine, he performed extremely well. Like, I felt like he was very well-deserving uh, to get the call up. Uh, obviously, Jalen Robinette was invited purely on, at least to me, he was invited purely on, you know, physical measurables. You know, he, he has a guy who has a great frame, great size, uh, great arm length, hand size, you know, but to me, he's a, he's a project player. And and yeah, there is a sort of thing. Well, we want to see him compete against Senior Bowl guys and see how he performs in that kind of environment. But I just felt like guys like Gabe Marks, guys like Austin Carr, or even Billy Brown, who is kind of an H back tight end, but those guys kind of stuck out a little bit more as far as receiving threats, and uh, and also the tight ends too. I mean, I know the thing is, is like th- there was a ton of tight ends at this Senior Bowl that were really impressive: Howard, Evan Ingram, uh, you know, et cetera. But at the Shrine game, guys like Eric Saber and Anthony Auclair, like there was a lot of tight ends who were really impressive that I felt 
if they got an invite to to the Senior Bowl, they probably would have, you know, had that same kind of effect in terms of uh, their performances. Uh, and Will Holden uh, from uh, you know Vanderbilt got the call up as well. I you know again he's he's a solid player. Uh, I felt like that was you know made sense. Of course, Aaron Penton was the most ball hockey of guys at the Shrine. So I was kind of happy. I was actually a little bit surprised he got the call up just because measurable-wise, there might be somebody who puts their foot down, but I actually was, was actually pretty happy that they actually got pinned in there uh, because because he performed really, you know, really well just in terms of as a nickel corner. I think uh, if you're a team looking for that type of guy, he would fit that pretty well. Uh, so I'd say they did a okay job. I mean, they could, could have done a little bit better, uh, but I did – feel like at least the guys who stood out uh, like big time and also Alex Torgerson as well from, from Penn, I felt possibly could have uh, got an invite uh, to, to the Cedar bowl over a couple of guys that were there. Um, but which didn't happen of course, but, but yeah, I felt like they did an okay job, you know, getting the guys at least who immediately popped at the shrine uh, to the senior bowl. So I felt like they did okay, but there definitely could have been some other guys that could have uh, went from there to there and would have performed well, at least, at least to me. Okay, got it. Now, we can't not talk about the quarterbacks. Uh, and, of course, I know Peterman came up a little bit, and he's gotten sort of some of the Tom Savagey buzz. You know, I don't know if it's because he transferred to Pitt or because he's got a pretty decent arm or because the other quarterbacks were even less impressive or, or what. But I guess I'll start with you, Shane. Uh, what things did you notice as you looked at each one of the quarterbacks, strengths, weaknesses, and if you can think of maybe a particular best outcome for them, what those things might be? Do we Shane? Do we Shane? Shane? may have lost Shane for real this time. Yes, I guess we did. We lost Shane. Did we lose Shane? No, maybe. Shane? Okay. Uh, then I'll ask you the same question, Christian. <laughs> um, next man up. The quarterback? Yeah, next man up. What do you know about the quarterback? <laughs> and, you know, strengths, weaknesses, and where, where they might, what their outcomes might be. Well, based on this week, I think the best outcome for Colorado quarterback Sefa Lufau would be to be drafted. Um, I'm just not a huge fan of him. I mean, he obviously brings a lot of things to the table physically, but uh, I just don't I, – I don't see it, and I don't – just kind of with word kind of getting around at the senior bowl, I don't think they really wanted him to be here. And I, 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 don't, I don't mean that in a negative way, but kind of like, you know, he wasn't necessarily a next man up. He was like a next man up to the next man up, you know, so – so why, so why him, I wonder, over a kid like Torgerson or Ryan Higgins or something or whatever? Sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, it, I, you know, I, I I haven't watched enough on all three of them, like side by side by side. You know, I kind of like to do that, comparing quarterbacks when I, like, evaluate them overall. But just with Lufau's overall game, you know, he only threw – I'm not I'm not a box score kind of scout, but he only threw 11 touchdowns this year to six interceptions. So production-wise, he wasn't even, you know, to the threshold of these other quarterbacks that were here. And mechanically-wise, you know, it literally looked like he was pulling a bow 
off his back and like you know how you pull a bow out of the bag on on the back of your back. And that's how he looked like he was throwing the football. He would have to look like he was really throwing the football, you know, behind his back and then delivering it and it obviously has timing issues and you know, dirt balls or whatever you want to call it. But uh overall I Lou Fowl just didn't change my mind about anything. And I know uh I guess it was I can't remember who said it earlier when we were talking, but you kind of want to go ahead and kind of get a good study and maybe a good gauge on how some of these uh, players in general play and kind of compare, like, how they're practicing the senior bowl. Well, sometimes I like to also come in, like, with a, a not watching much film at them at all, just kind of get that overall objective view instead of get kind of a, a subjective, like, well, this guy is not good in this area, and then you kind of have that in the back of your mind. Well, with Lufau, I mean, I've watched most most film on him, and I kind of came in with that subjective feeling, and I don't think he really answered the call. Uh, I think, like you handed to Nate Peterman, probably the best one out of all the quarterbacks here. Davis Webb looks the part. Um, he has the quickest release here. Um, his his footwork's kind of on and off, and it kind of messes with some of his throws. Kind of got a little sloppy the last day of practice, as I think he threw, I want to say, two interceptions or or two that should have been picked. Um, so, But I think Peterman, just the way he handled himself, he just did, I guess, the less worse out of all of them, if that kind of answers your question. Okay. And what do you think the future may hold for a guy like Peter? Where do you see him ending up? What do you think the, the outcome might be for him? Just like a draft projection? Or like does he, is a guy you think – could possibly start. Do you think he's a West Coast guy? Like, what do you, what do you think he? Where do you think he should go or could go in terms of maybe not a specific team, but a specific kind of offense? Yeah, and I understand when I heard the Kirk Cousins thrown around, and I know we mentioned it already. And you know, to be honest, being a backup quarterback is not a bad job in the NFL. I mean, you know, we saw Connor Cook start for the Oakland Raiders this year because Derek Carr went out and then Mac McGoin went out. And, like, did we think Connor Cook was going to play this year? Not at all. And, you know, the next man up, so to speak, for that. So I think maybe in a situation where he – I don't know if he's necessarily a starter at the next level. Um, But then again, I wasn't too high on Dak Prescott either, and look what he's doing. And and maybe if Nate Peterson could kind of ease into maybe just an NFL pro-style type offense, like he ran at Pittsburgh, I think he would still feel comfortable in an offense that operated similar. And, uh, I mean, I, could he come in and win you uh, five or six games in a season? Uh, probably based on some of the other quarterbacks in the league right now. Um, but I don't. I could see him as a starter in a few years, but immediately no. Um, and just from a draft prospect, uh, projection, I wouldn't be surprised to see him taken off the board, you know, mid-second round. Based off this week and kind of how his, his status has kind of heated up over the past month or so. Okay. Uh, anybody else? I don't know if Shane's back or not. Shane? No, maybe? Okay. Uh, well, then I'll go back to Trevor. Uh, same question to you, Trevor. Did What did you notice about the quarterbacks? Was there anybody, maybe other than Peter Mitch, you thought has a chance to be something, even like a, you know, even a number two at the next level? And where would you see any of those guys being best in terms of, you know, the actual kind of offense? Oh, sorry, I was on mute. Um, 
There we well, go. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I guess I'll, I'll I'll start off by saying that uh, I I think Peterman had the best week, but I don't think any of these guys are are NFL starters like at all. Like even uh, you know even it's it's hard to. I know Christian was talking about you know that kind of next man up mentality, and that like obviously that's something that could happen at any time. But um, I, I mean, I just didn't really see it from any of these guys when I watch quarterbacks in the NFL. It's such a difficult job, and you have to be able to do so many different things that all of these guys have some kind of a, at, at least the predictable NFL starters. You know, the guys who are supposed to be starting. These are guys that yeah. um, have, have that that real. I, I, that a, a team brings like, in hoping they will one day start. Yeah, so that's what I'm talking about. Guys right. would like to be your start. Yes. <laughs> right, exactly. A lot of those guys have that it factor to them, you know, that just like that gamer mentality. And I just did, I did not see any of that from, from these guys. Actually, the only guy who I thought perhaps will have that someday is actually Tennessee's Josh Dobbs. And um, I've watched him over the last two years, and he has made a handful of really, really nice throws that I have liked. But he's not consistent with it. He has, you know, plenty of mechanic issues and decision issues. But um, honestly, if we're talking about a guy to possibly have that it factor to him later in his career, Josh Dobbs would be my guy. Um, Davis Webb, I saw that the Senior Bowl themselves voted as the, I guess, top performer from the quarterback position, which I, I think Webb has the better arm, the bigger arm than anyone at the camp. But uh, he's just not consistent with it. Uh, he, whenever he tried to, I think it's just in, in my recap, use the word challenge the field. Whenever he tried to do that, I think that, you know, beyond 20, 25 yards, even just at a consistent level, he really struggled to do that. So I think that's, that's why everybody's coming away with Peterman as their top guy, um, because I, I think the, the handful of nice plays beyond 10 yards down the field or even out of structure, you know, Peterman had more of those that went for completions than anybody else. But all of that is, you know, you have to take that in, in uh, with a relative mindset of what's going on and, and what it means to be the quote-unquote best from this group. I still don't think it's enough to be an NFL starter. Uh, finally, I guess uh, Antonio Pipkin, he had he had a he had quite the following going to the Senior Bowl. It seemed like whenever <laughs> any of us tweeted about him, you know, he had a couple fan clubs and everything that were always searching his name and retweeting it or tweeting at us if it was something negative or blah blah blah. And I'll say this about him, uh, and I watched, you know, I, I watched games with him going into this week. He has a really nice touch on certain throws, and I think that's why people love him more than they should, uh, because you see in his game tape these these throws that are these real timing touch throws. That you go, wow, that's a <clears throat> that's a trait that you know you really can't teach a quarterback. However, uh, his delivery is incredibly slow. And there is yeah. just no zip off the ball when it comes out of his hands, or at least there certainly wasn't this week. And this is in practice, so uh, I, 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 I'm sure I might get some some negative tweets from his following for saying that kind of a thing. But uh, he was a guy who I was looking to see if he could really, I, I, I don't know, I either change a delivery or, or show some more power or velocity on his throws that I just you know straight up did not see this week. So. That would be my assessment of the quarterback position. Yeah, it was a surprise to me only because I could, without thinking hard, think of four, maybe five Division two quarterbacks or FCS quarterbacks that I thought were more deserving. And, of course, you know, Jim mentioned one of them, not Torgerson. There's a kid named Shepnisky, uh who tore it up 
uh, this year at Lehigh. I don't know why he gets zero love. I don't know, whatever. Uh, people, people. I guess these people know better than I know. But yes, uh, he's he's an interesting looking prospect. But like I said, I saw better Division two quarterbacks, and I've seen better FCS quarterbacks. Uh, let's let's see. So we've certainly discussed. We've talked a little bit about the defensive backs. Now there's always a debate about. Now I'll bring Jim into this. The old corner safety debate. Now I have said more times than I'm here to count, that not every corner who isn't super fast or isn't super quick is automatically a safety. It's really two different positions, people. It's not just it's not as simple as just moving a guy inside or moving a guy a little further down the field. And I tried to put it in perspective this way. It, at one point, you're being told, hey, could you just keep an eye on the jewelry department and make sure people aren't making off of the jewels and then another time they say, hey, see all these screens here? Can you watch all these screens and basically watch the entire store? It's two very different mindsets. I've played both positions. I, I can tell you it's not as easy as people think to just simply pick up and go from here to there. But I'll start with you, Jim. If somebody's actually looking for a way to figure out whether a guy is actually a corner, say maybe a zone corner or a nickel corner, as opposed to a guy who actually should be a safety, what, are there things that help to make or should help to make that decision? Well, if you're asking me what makes a great safety and like what you would look at a quarterback, I mean, to me, what you want in a safety, it's in the name, folks, safety, safe, you know, it, being safe. But the biggest thing is to be a very, very sure tackler at space in general. I mean, tackle, stop, touchdown. Uh, it's basically like that. And, and a lot of times when you're a safety, you have to make those one-on-one tackles. And I don't mind cornerbacks who are a little over-aggressive at times. And, and you know, I do like guys that are good tacklers. I love guys that are great tacklers. Uh, there are some hmm. guys who aren't the best tacklers, but they're very aggressive. And I like that aggressiveness in, in cornerbacks. But it's it's a quality that, it's not a safety. You know, a lot of times guys will go, oh, you can be a safety because look how aggressive he is going downhill. And that's not really a safety. A safety is a guy that, that is a sure tackler. It's a guy that's going to get a guy down um, in one-on-one, you know, mano a mano, like it's the end zone or I make this tackle. I like guys that are consistently good tacklers when it comes to cornerback. And uh, the second one to me also is just football intelligence, you know, and also spatial awareness. Do, do they understand where they are in the football field? Do they have a good understanding of uh, realizing, okay, I need to get depth? Like the biggest example to me is like Desmond King. You know, Desmond King is a guy that is not going to be running four three guys. I mean, that's just not going to happen. It wasn't on tape. It didn't show up at Cedar Bowl. It's just not going to happen. But what I did like about Desmond King is just how fast he was when he got in the situations where you know, a lot of times he might over-pursue. He might just go downhill way too much, but then he would stop. He would redirect his body upfield, get depth, and then put himself in the right angle so that if his guys couldn't make that play, he at least would have the best chance possible to, to get that right angle to make that play. And a lot of safety is that. It's about knowing where you are in the football field, knowing how what it's going to take from getting from point A to point B, 
knowing where everybody else is around you, you know, like what's this guy doing? What's this guy doing? And being able to process all that just like that, you know, like it has to be second nature. I mean, Wade Phillips even said it himself, you know, defense is is reacting. I mean, you're reacting. And a lot of times it's quick decisions and, and reacting at a quick pace. And if I see a cornerback who has that, he shows it on tape where he may be, going downhill and he redirects himself. And a lot of times you'll see cornerbacks who make plays on the other side of the football field. And a lot of that comes from that, you know, understanding where they are, where they are in the football field, how can they get from this place to this place, the fastest way, taking the proper angle, and of course making the tackle. And I think if you look at those two qualities, and that's really what I look for if you're talking about a cornerback to a safety, the whole argument of, well, he is an athletic, so let's put him at safety, is a really dumb one, only because <laughs> every great safety prospect in the NFL, the majority of the great safety prospects in the NFL, were all great athletes, were all guys that could have played cornerback, but just happened to be safeties. Uh, you know, Thank Earl, you. Earl, Earl Thomas, for example, <laughs> was basically a cornerback athlete who just happened to play safety. He also played cornerback. So, uh, Eric Weddle, like all these guys were, were just great. I mean, Eric great Berry. Safety. Eric Berry, you know, Malcolm whoever Jenkins. you want to name, Sean Taylor, <laughs> even Trey Palomar. I'm just I'm telling you, I check out Trey Palomar's USC numbers. You'll be like, oh, my gosh. But, yeah, so, like, every great safety you could think of, at least an elite safety, had great measurables. Now, can you get away with having less athleticism and safety? Somewhat, but they also have to have great football intelligence. So, I would just say when it comes to looking at qualities at cornerback, you're just looking for two different things. At cornerback, you're looking for a guy who, you know, it, it, at least it's the way I've always viewed cornerback, you're looking for probably aggressive, he's trying to make plays because you have a safety back there. You have, you have a safety blanket. You have, you have a thing where, like, if I make a mistake, if Richard Sherman makes a mistake, you know, being a little aggressive trying to get an interception, Earl Thomas is right behind me to take care of whatever happens, you know? So like, that's just my mentality when it comes to safety. So you, you need to find cornerbacks who, who have that again, one really good tacklers guys that, you know, if they get in one-on-one situations, they're going to make that tackle. And then two, of course, football intelligence with the spatial awareness. I mean, those are the two big ones. Uh, And I guess this just kind of turned into Desmond King talk, but I just always felt like just from watching his film, that he has those qualities. You know, he, he is a sure tackler. Well, somewhat. I've seen some sloppy tapes in there. But there is some questions there, but at least his football intelligence, just his ability to understand where he is on the football field, adjust on the fly, and, and get himself in the best position to make the play when he makes a mistake is probably one of the better ones in the class at cornerback when it comes to that type of, you know, football IQ. Yeah, I, I got a little bothered because it got to be kind of like a thing. They're like, hey, let's trash Desmond King. And I, I understand. First of all, if you've ever been in one of these drills, it's set up to make the wide receiver look good people. If you manage to survive some of these drills with the corner, you should pat yourself on the back. Because, yeah. first of all, I mean, they've got nothing but green grass and the good Lord around them and you. They, you know, so there's no help obviously. There's no help coming. And if a guy is a terrific route runner, and we had some ter- – that's one thing I will say about this wide receiver group. There were some route runners in this group. Taiwan Taylor, 
plus route runner. Trent Taylor, plus route runner. Ryan Switzer, maybe double plus route runner. And then, of course, obviously, a lot of the love that went to Cooper Cup because he's a, you know, close to elite level route runner. So a guy who knows how to look the same, this is what people don't realize. It's not just being tricky or – because people got super excited about um, Braxton Miller with the N1 mixtape he put on, not realizing that you can't do that stuff in a real football game. You don't have four and a half seconds to juke a guy. This is not, you know, how it works in real football. You've got to do it now. It's got to happen now. You can't set it up for three seconds and then make a move. You've got to go now. And we have some now guys. The guys that, that were a lot of those guys that were just talking about, guys who could make that move now. They're going to get you off your spot now. And you're trying to recover. It's a game of recovery, basically. And... That's what people got on Desmond King about. He didn't always recover, and a couple of cases got you know looked bad even. But once again, if you watched enough, you see, hey, when they got into some of the other drills, and you know, hey, team stuff, and you could see that this is a really good football player. You know, let's not get too crazy about let's get practice, particularly certain types of practice that are weighted, you know, more towards one side than the other, and. I bet you a dollar to a donut. He's going to make a couple of very impressive plays in the game itself. And, you know, some of those same people who are, you know, roasting Desmond King, I wonder if they'll come back and say, okay, I see what you need. He's a better player than you thought. But it's unlikely that that will happen. But it would be cool if somebody did say, okay, I see now he's not, you know, not bad. Just He's in a drill where the wide receiver should win. And the wide receiver, frankly, should win pretty much all of those drills. If you get, if you don't win some of those drills as a wide receiver, then there's a problem. You need to win most of them because the DB is. I mean, obviously you're always at a disadvantage. I don't know if anyone else decides me to play defense at back, but trust me, especially now you're always at a disadvantage. But in these situations, the best you can hope for one is you're hoping the, the you know, the, maybe the pass will be a little late or maybe the ball target, so you can you know get back into it. But if a guy's a terrific route runner, you're just trying not to get embarrassed. If you manage to not look bad, you've done something in most of these one-on-ones because it's, it's stacked. The deck is very much stacked against the DB. Um, and that's why people went so goo-goo-gaga over Hassan Reddick's ability to do what he did. And he got geek-guessed a couple of times, and guess what? You know, you get rewarded for guessing right in these drills. Uh, if it were a real game and you were violating your technique by guessing on something and shading farther inside than you're supposed to do, and even if you got away with it, you still need the butt-chewing in a real football game situation when your coach is like, hey, that's not what we discussed. You can't just be doing that. But this is one-on-ones, and it's an all-star game. So no one's going to yell at you uh, if you guess and guess right in those situations. Um, we talked a little bit about the defenses. I'm not sorry, the um, – Running backs in terms of blitz pickup drills. I'll come back to you, Trevor. That's one of my favorite things is watching a lot of these running backs who haven't done a lot of blitz pickup, blitz protection stuff, actually go out there and block linebackers and that kind of thing. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, what did you see? Uh, I like Cream Hunt a lot, and I like Cream Hunt going into the week as the, I think it's my number one senior running back, and he leaves the week with that same spot for me. I think that he is um, – I, th- I think – I really kind of think he's the total package, and part of what it is is, like you said, in, in pass protection. Um, and you don't get to see – I don't know, you don't get to see a lot of it. Uh, you get to see some of it, but because they're rotating these guys in, like, so 
quickly here and there and blah, blah, blah. Um, they're running so many different plays, you don't get as many looks as you would want to see. Um, but <clears throat> I do think that Hunt was probably, yeah, I would say the most complete back there. Uh, Jamal Williams would be after him. And then, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of, of guys who could possibly be that, and I, I hate to use this term, this this three-down back term, because I honestly think that the NFL is moving towards a way where you don't have to prioritize these three-down backs. And really, when you look at a lot of the successful teams of the NFL, specialization players in a certain percentage role of a committee back is actually more effective. But that's a different topic. Um, I, I think that these guys, uh, I thought those top two guys performed pretty well. Um, I do like Davion Smith. Uh, like like Jim said, I, I like the fact that he got called up because we got to see him against different level competition. We got to see him against better players. And um, I thought he performed well. He hurt his ankle in the last day, so I don't know how much I can I can really count because I did see him struggle a little bit in the last day, but he did hurt his ankle there. So I don't know. You know, I, I don't want to hamper – not only do I not want to hamper too much on practice, but um, especially if he was injured there on that last day. But just, yeah, my my, my top guy would be Kareem Hunt. I really like him. I think he's a guy that's going to get picked in, in the day two range, either rounds two or three. Uh, I really think that he could do it all. He had a really nice one-handed catch in the, in the passing drills. He scored a couple He scored a couple of other touchdowns uh, when coming out of the, the backfield in a pass-catching role, as well as um, he showed a lot of good vision this week. And so, you know, the offensive line is very makeshift. You, you get guys from around the country to somehow come together and, and show chemistry within three days to somehow evaluate running backs. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tall and almost impossible task. But uh, when it term, in terms of just what I saw um, in terms of, like, ability and skill, those would be my top two guys. I will say that Hunt came in a little bit lighter than I thought that he would. Um, he's a guy that at one point I think weighed almost almost 240 pounds, I think, two years ago. He weighed that high, and... Uh, I think he was listed at around 225 this season, and he came in at, I believe, 215, 210. I can't remember exactly yeah, he, what it is. but he, 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 I think he was down to 208. He has been as high as 223 in the last 10 or 11 months. And my guess yeah. is he's le- trying to lean down so he can run fast, uh, which yeah, it, uh, Jamal Williams has done some of the same thing. He's dropped about 12 pounds as well since the season. Yeah, and I think all of those guys will, and I think that um, – you know, when, when we look at their measurements during this time of the year, it's easy to be like, oh, yeah, you know, their school just pumps up their, pumps up their weight because they, they want to make them seem better. Well, that might be the case, you know, that a school could be doing that. But at the same time, like you noted, these guys are also training to run the fastest they can at the scouting combine in a couple of months. So it makes sense yep. that their numbers would be down for that reason alone. So Don't, uh, don't be shocked if Leonard Fournette's like 219 or 221 or something yeah. when he shows up as yeah. well. A lot of these guys, running backs, a lot of the running backs are going to drop lean. No, they don't pump, they won't. A lot of the running backs are going to be trying to drop weight uh, when they show up to run. And so a lot of these guys you thought were – and some of them maybe have been 230, 240. I mean, obviously, one of the most famous cases now is Le'Veon Bell, who's continuously losing weight since the age of 20 and nine months or something. He's just gotten smaller and smaller every year. He'll be 205 next season. But, um, yes. Guys want to run fast because it's money. That's why. They'll, and don't worry. They know they have to block linebackers. They'll gain the weight back and <laughs> get to the NFL, but they've got to run that 40. Yep. Um, yep. No, you, that's, that's the moneymaker. 
And so you're right. Yeah. I, I was I was just oh, going to say yeah. in in closing, uh, even though I think Kareem Hunt is like you said 208, probably 205 by the time he runs. I expect him to be at a playing weight of probably about 215, 220. So. Right. Right. Yeah, because you have to still survive. <laughs> you have to still right. Yeah, you know, and just right. get in there and fight with 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 big scary men, uh, which the NFL still is full of. Uh, there was a lot of love, Trevor, for a lot of the um, uh, the note that almost said Notre Dame, the um, Michigan uh, sort of interior line, or or maybe defensive ends. When you look at them, what did you think of some of those guys? Well, there were there were a lot of Michigan players, and Jim can uh, yeah. Jim can attest to this too. In the Shrine game last week, there were a lot of Michigan players, and so yep. um, that just tells you. Um, the, I guess the talent that was on that Michigan team, and you know we're not even talking about uh, some of the yeah. underclassmen guys. But um, you know, as a whole, before I get into any of those trench guys, maybe I really liked Jordan Lewis this week. Uh, he's short, yes, we get it, we know he is. Uh, but when he it is, comes to he is he is the Dale Pumphrey of the cornerback class, yes. All correct. that good he tape. Really are you gonna let are you gonna let the fact that he's not as big as you want him to be wipe all that good tape out of your mind? Exactly, and he had a couple of plays this this. This week, where that I thought flew under the radar, where I I looked at him make a great play, and I kind of looked around and I waited for I, you know I, I read a lot of people's work during the practices just to see you know the pulse on things and you know nobody was really talking about Jordan Lewis that much and there were a couple plays where even in red zone drills and like you said not only are one on ones between DBs and wide receivers stacked against wide receivers or stacked against defensive backs put a guy like Jordan Lewis in a red zone drill and that is just like doubling the you should not succeed here. And he had a couple of plays where, you know, on a, on a fade route, on an inside route, where a guy would have him beat, as he should, because it's the nature of the drill, and he could make a diving play, make a pass break up here. And so I thought that he was just the cornerback that I thought he was, and that's a, that's a heck of a ball player, even at his side. So, you know, I'm, agree, I'm agreeing with you there. I think Chris Worley was probably my top trench guy for the Michigan people. Um, he is just – uh this week, you know, he was he was violent with his hands. And so, uh, you know, I thought he did a good job this week of, of separating himself there. There's a question of where, where do you play him? You know, is he an edge guy? Is he a 3-4 defensive end? What do you do with him? Because he is a big guy. He's more of a strength guy than anything else. But um, when I looked at him this week, I saw a good football player. And so I, I saw a guy who's going to be violent in the trenches and really make a difference. So um, I, I kind of think he's more of an interior guy than an edge guy. But um, I was impressed with him overall. Okay, got it. And let's see. We've talked a lot about, and I'll bring Jim into this. There's a lot of things that can make a player look good. We all saw, and, you know, some of us will probably never forget, what we saw happen when you got a chance to to let loose, to expose to the world, to uh, whatever term you want to use, when... You had some of those red zone, not red zone, but uh, goal line and whatever situation. And, of course, one-on-ones and everything else you want to mention, you know, that gave you a chance to Aaron Donald just basically destroy everything that's in his path. Uh, we didn't have anybody quite like that, obviously. As you mentioned, Warmly had some some good reps, and there were some other guys that looked good. We didn't, you know, Aaron Donald's not going <laughs> very often. But what are the things, when we do look at something, the interior pass rush and other things like that, what are the things that, do translate from 
one-on-ones and you know, goal line or whatever else. Like when Aaron Donald does what he's doing, that does matter. Like that, we like we all. I, I'm not a person who even can quantify certain things, but I knew when I watched Aaron Donald do what Aaron Donald was doing, I was like, "Yep, people can shut up about him being undersized. He's going to be an unstoppable killing machine." It's clear to me this is a dominant player, and then he goes to the combine and does the crazy stuff he did. And I got a chance to see him do that, and I was like, "Okay, well, you know." I was sold long before this, but now I am sold, I'm signed, I'm shipped, I've been delivered and signed, you know, packaged, uh, unpacked, enjoy. But what things actually translate? Like, what things about that, about what we look particularly at defensive line, offensive line, drills, interior stuff, goal line stuff, the, the stuff that isn't as sexy as the one-on-ones against air you know, stuff with the DBs and things like that and the wide receivers, what can we take away from that stuff when it's actually more congested? Um, well, if I'm, if, you know, if I'm answering that, uh, I would say that for interior defensive linemen, you're looking for a guy that can win or that is, you know, fighting or at least about to win on, um, you know, each, I guess I would say, second of the pass rush. So, like, from zero to the, from zero to the first second from when the ball is snapped, you're looking for a guy to get off the ball and have leverage. You know, from second one and two, you're looking for a guy to um, be good with his hands, be violent with his hands, and also tur- start turning that leverage into into power. You know, from second uh, three to four, you're looking to see what he does once he gets into the offensive alignment, how well he can maneuver him and take control of him, and then you know. Seconds after that, you're talking about pass rush moves and things like that. So when you watch Aaron Donald, he wins or he is at least fighting like hell on every single one of the seconds that he is pass rushing. And I think that's what makes a great pass rusher. Because when you look at, let's say, Montrevious Adams from Auburn, his get-off on the snap is very good. You know, at at times he, he just abused people. He abused offensive linemen. He could, you know, swim move them or rip move them or make them basically just fall on their knees the second the snap happened because he was able to so quickly get out of his stance and get around them. But what worries him or what worries people about him is that on those instances where he doesn't do that, he doesn't really win after that. And so that's why I, I think that a couple of years ago we as a like as a draft community were very enamored with the get off on the snap being the, I want to say end all be all, because we certainly looked at things after that. But, you know, it, we would prioritize guys who had this great get off the snap because it, it allowed them to possibly be disruptive in so many ways. And that's great. You know, you, you might get a handful of plays like that during the game, but there's a lot more than a handful of plays that happened in a football game. And you need your interior defensive lineman to be disruptive that entire time. And so, you know, we talked about, I guess, a high motor. Um, you definitely want to see that from a guy, but you gotta, you have to see more than that. You have to see somebody succeed with such a high motor. And when, yeah, when you reference Aaron Donald just eating people up uh, when he was here not too long ago, that's really what stood out for me. Uh, you know, when I watched him, I wasn't watching him as a scout. I was just watching him kind of as a fan when I was watching Senior Bowl coverage. But this guy was, you know, even if he would get stood up at the very beginning. The, those those second and third seconds of his pass rush, he would almost like restart if he had lost the 
the initial engagement and then dominate that next facet of the pass rush, you know, caught. And if we're, I mean, if you, I think Jaleel Johnson was from Iowa was the closest guy to Donald, not calling him Aaron Donald or anything, but I think he was right. the closest guy to that this week. I thought that he had a really great week when it came to just showing that he could consistently be a force, you know, throughout a pass rush at the very beginning. He was able to get by guys. He had a good swim move. He was powerful out of his leverage. So um, he would have been my top interior. He, he's my top interior defensive lineman coming out of the week. But uh, just, yeah, going back to your point about what makes a great interior pass rusher, I think it's that um, having that motor and knowing what to do with it, winning in different facets of the pass rushing game at different phases of it, because there's always going to be different phases. Extremely well put. Thank you. You your answer was way better than my question. Uh same question put <laughs> <laughs> to you. Uh but yes, Jim, what things do you take away from and how do you spot that guy? I mean obviously we don't see Aaron Donald every year or even every ten years really, but how do you spot that guy who has who has the Sue, the Donald, the Sap, the John Randall? What things do you look for and how do you grade those things in terms of interior guy? Well, I mean it's it's I mean, I, I would just go with Trey's answer, but realistically, it's it's the same thing of the biggest thing I think gets under under evaluated, under looked at when it comes to pass rushers is is there's a lot of chess games to it. Um, there's a lot in the NFL. Offensive linemen are going to adjust to you, you know, uh, <laughs> and it, it's gonna happen. And it was one of the things that I always thought was kind of funny about Joey Bosa, just as an example, was there was a lot of, well, you know, he, you know, his, his explosiveness isn't really that great, and you know this, and, you know, like there was a lot of stuff like that with him. Uh, and I was like, well, he's, but he's winning, you know, like in terms of like consistently getting leverage, consistently putting himself in position. The plays are usually going away from him a lot uh, because obviously offensive corners are dumb, you know. Uh, so like they're just not gonna run it in play, but it's it's about the the sense of you know seeing okay do they do they get leverage do they they get off leverage but also trying to figure out okay what is this offensive lineman doing to me I'm not winning what do I need to do to adjust and do they adjust um, there are a lot of players going into this week you know Jordan Willis for example and believe me I, I like Jordan Willis a, a good deal he's one of those guys that has a you know really good get off like that. But he's one of those guys that will do the speed rush and, and then he'll do the speed rush and, and then he'll do the speed rush again and, and then he'll do the speed rush again and, and the offensive lineman consistently is, is like, like the first time got him, but then he just kept doing it over and over and over again and the offensive, you know, offensive tackle adjusted to it, you know, wind, wind his, uh, yeah, his, his release a little bit more. So there was just lots of instances like that where, again, you look at these one-on-one situations and for the most part, offensive linemen, and I don't want to offend them, but, you know, offensive linemen is a cohesive unit. You know, it's five players on a line, six if you include the tight end, seven if you have that double tight end set up. It's a cohesive unit. You're going to get help. You're going to get guys to help you. And a lot of times, most offensive linemen are not going to do well in one-on-one situations. And the great ones do, but most of the time you can have a guy who isn't really great in one-on-ones but can work cohesively in a unit and when I when I think when it comes to pass rushers at these events, you're looking for guys that are getting again getting that initial leverage, just like Trey said. But also, what do they do after that fact? And also, what do the offensive linemen do? And how do you adjust 
to that situation. You know, if they if they tend to be, you know, shooting with that right arm uh, or that left arm, you know, to get underneath me, what what am I going to do to counter that? What am I going to do? Like, what are they doing mentally to fix the situation? And that's one area where I think these events, again, aren't really the best per se. I mean, because you don't, I mean, you're going to have one guy go against one guy and then another guy go against another guy. And sometimes there'll be two, two, maybe three reps with the same player at times. But that's the one thing is you're usually going up against people differently each time and you're not really getting into a rhythm and not really getting a good idea for that. But I would just say it's just, I don't know, as you said, Bill, grandma scouting, whatever you want to call it, um, that's what a lot of these events are, at least to me. I mean, Aaron Donald was basically like National Geographic when I was there. It was one of those <laughs> moments where it was like the lion is going to, you know, is 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 devouring a zebra and there's nothing you can do. Like people have to look <laughs> away from what's happening because it, it, there's just nothing you could – I'm just saying, like, it was like that at times. It was like – It was a bad okay. day to go to the watering hole of the Serengeti that day. Exactly. It was that type of moment at practice uh, where, you know, especially, you know, when he flipped that poor guard from Baylor, you know, uh, on it, you know, and it, like, basically bent him in half, you know, at, at practice, and you're just kind of like, Oh Lord, like this guy's a handful, man. So I just say it's again, it's a lot about that. But it, but as Trey said, especially you know, at least with motor, because everybody talks about high motor. Oh, he's a high motor guy. He's a high motor guy. But is he winning with a high motor? Because yes, right. The best, the best example to me is, and I, I don't want to bring Malik McDowell into this, but I, yeah, I will. Is that he is a guy who has a high motor. Every time he's on the football field, he's giving one hundred ten percent. But he's not winning 110% of the time. No. He's putting or a lot 50% of effort in. of the time. <laughs> he's putting a lot of effort in, but not getting a lot of stuff out. And uh, I think when you go to these events, definitely high motor is a trait. Uh, it is something that you want out of any player. I mean, everybody wants a guy who, who's trying hard in every single snap. But you want a guy who's winning um, along with that motor because that's really what separates you know, the great players from the good players from the average players. And I think it's just a combination of those things. It's, it's how much effort they're giving. It's are they winning? And just like Trey said perfectly, you know, do they get do they get that initial leverage? Uh, and if they don't get that initial leverage, do they work to get the leverage back and then flip it on them as well? So, uh, and we've seen a couple, you know, Tano was one of those guys, for example, you know, where he was having to, he wasn't always winning, you know, the leverage battle, but essentially was working himself, working himself back into that to, to, to reestablish leverage and then winning that, uh, that session. And that's the only thing also, again, about practices is that, you know, this isn't, I mean, in the NFL, the, 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 the snap is going to be gone within two, three seconds. Um, if you're going up against Tom Brady, you're talking about you know two seconds really. I mean, you've that's, got, yeah, you've got like one point eight something seconds if you're trying to get pressure on Tom Brady. After that, Julian so, Edelman is already giving your nickel back hell. Exactly. So uh, there's a lot of and one mixtapes to these things as well. It, it just in terms of uh, you know, but but really it's 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 just like that. It's, it's winning and understanding that. The, you know, that a guy definitely uh, can work himself and win, but 
how long are we realistically talking about? You know, how long is the quarterback really going to be patting that ball uh, and then finally throwing it? So uh, but there's a little bit of that too. But I'll just say it's, it's really those things. It's seeing guys that are giving high effort. But as I said, at, at another point, it, it's it's really just grandma scouting at some point, you know, with these practices. It, it's just seeing a guy having – it's like Serengeti and seeing who's the biggest alpha out there um, in terms of, you know, their approach. And, and again, sometimes you won't have that guy. You know, you won't have that 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 Aaron Donald-like guy. Uh, it's not always going to happen, but at the very least, you'll have guys who are showing good effort or showing uh, that they can win the leverage battle. And, uh, and, and those are the biggest things that you can take away. And also going back and watching the film as well um, on these practices – to kind of see if it's similar issues that they have uh, on, on tape, because you know there's there's lots of guys like like for example you know Mon Adams here we we I don't want to rag on him anymore uh, than he already has been, but <laughs> his tape is a lot like his practice. I mean it's yep he he's one of those guys that that will show a flashy play. Um, I would say Pinnish, you know he's a he's a three tech without a brain only only in the sense that he is getting penetration. He is like, you see this like flash up field, but then he just opened up a running lane for the running back and the running back just cuts in there and then goes. So, I mean, there's, there's flash. And then there's also just not winning that battle, you know, on film. And it, again, it showed up at the senior bowl as well. Um, so it's just lots of different things like that, but that's just the biggest thing to me is a lot of times that it comes to these practices, it's high octane, it's high adrenaline, it's, you know, high alpha male type stuff, which is why everybody watches them. I mean, they're usually the, the funnest drills. I mean, the second they have the O-line, D-line drills, everybody's walking. It's just a sea of people, you know, walking over there to the go coaches, check them out. Because, the coaches stop talking about where they're going to go after to eat, and they only run over, yes. Pretty much. It's 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 the sort of uh, uh, the, the sort of like, you know, a really hot girl walks by and everybody just turns their head and then they have to pay attention to that. You know, it's, it's that type of moment at these type of events with good reason. I mean, again, because it's, it's the most interesting. It's, everybody wants to see that sort of, because again, it's a very visceral feeling um, to watch these drills and being there as well. Like I said, it's very, there's a lot of uh, high, high energy, but it, it's, you just feel it when you go to these types of things and you see it in person and, and seeing how they react and seeing how they perform. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that can go into that, you know, a lot of things you can kind of take and kind of back up with what you already saw in film and stuff like that when it comes to these events. And uh, you mentioned alpha, uh, pure nasty, tough guy, whatever. Obviously you don't get to see as much of that, as you would in a, in a game situation, but you definitely sometimes in one-on-ones can spot that. In terms of just chip on the shoulder, tough guys, obviously we saw, you know, some, some guys get a little, you know, chippy. But without it, without getting into actual fisticuffs, in terms of play style, within the, you know, between the whistles, Trey, who did you notice who showed the most usable football toughness? Not, you know, fights, but usable football toughness. Who looked like a guy who you'd like to have for an actual football game where things might get rough? Um, are we talking any position or defensive line? Yeah, yeah, go through it, the whole position, any position, all okay. positions. Okay, I guess, 
Well, I guess my answer would be a guy on the defensive line. Uh, Andy or Eddie Vanderdose from UCLA. Um, that guy just <laughs> looks like a dog, and he 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 plays like a dog. And he uh, even I, I got the chance to interview him after one of the practices, and uh, this is just a dude that you can tell he. He he treats football like it's war. I mean, I know a lot of people don't like that correlation with with a with a sport and war, and um, that's that, that's a totally different debate. But he treats it like it's that serious, and that he really is going to battle with the guy who's next to him. And um, I think he, uh, I think he's an incredibly tough dude. Um, and it's, it's uh, a little bit contradictory to say that because I know that he's dealt with injuries throughout his career, but um, he's a guy who his weight and his body type kind of worried me because you look at him, he's got like bigger hips. He's got more of a, like a narrow lower body. And that kind of, that kind of worried me a little bit when I saw him, not only like on tape, but then I saw him in person at the measurements. So I was like, man, you know, how, how much power can this guy really get? But when it clicks for him, when he is able to generate that power, when his technique and his form are fine, he ate people up and he, you know, he would be mid, Mid battle with somebody throwing hands and just like going for overpowering people, and you could tell it just it it it's it was why he loves to play football because he gets to be in that trench and just beat somebody up and out muscle somebody, and uh, every single rep he kind of was just striving for uh, that next chance that he got to whoop up on somebody. So uh, just from talking to him afterwards and knowing the type of position that he plays, that like a nose tackle and an interior lineman, and the nature of that is. And uh, hearing hearing him talk afterwards and uh, just listening to kind of like who he is and his mentality, I would say that he is uh, one tough son of a gun, and uh, I would not want to be going uh, lining up against him. Okay. Uh, was there anybody else at the other position that showed, I'd say, an unusual level of physical toughness? And like I said, I'm not talking necessarily about a guy who's picking fights necessarily, but a guy who's thump, who's got plays with thump. Was there anybody else, Trevor, that caught your eye? Um... Hmm. Let me think. Darren, do you have a guy while well, I'm thinking? Do you have a guy in mind? Well, I know some people raved about, I mean, obviously, Hassan Ray is a guy that brings it a little bit. And people talked about some, uh-huh. of, the, some of the safeties also. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just, but I'm not trying to influence you. I'm thinking about people that you might have noticed that like physical contact, basically, um, which you look for oh, I mean, football players, well, obviously. For a guy, for a guy that uh, loves physical contact, uh, Demonte Casey, the cornerback, for sure. If we're talking about something outside of the outside of the trenches, I mean, you watch his tape and, and you watch that this is a guy who loves to come up and tackle and hit. But uh, boy, in the first day, especially, you could tell that that is what he has been told from NFL teams that they like about him. And and you could kind of tell that he was trying to boast, I, I guess I'll say boast that part of his game. Uh, because okay. there was one, there there was one ref I remember where he was going up against Josh Reynolds where Reynolds ended up making the catch about six, seven seconds later on a one-on-one. But at a press coverage, he just tried to put Evans in the ground for like four straight seconds. And, um, <laughs> He is a guy who who really loves to be physical um, as a corner, and I think that it was good for him to be here this week, and it was good for him to know that the NFL likes that he's physical because he tried to do it a little too much, I will say, and he got caught a couple of times. He tried to be a little bit over-physical, and receivers kind of gave him a move here and there, and he's kind of caught whiffing it air. And so I think that'll help him in the long run, but 
he is definitely a physical guy. Uh, so, so I guess, yeah, he, he would be a guy that I, I noticed as well. Okay. And in terms of people brought up concerns, size concerns, Trent Taylor, we heard about that. Switzer, people, we heard about that. And obviously we really heard about Mel Humphrey. But I would advise people to take a look at the career of Warren Dunn, who I think played at about 177 to 174 for about 12 years in the NFL. But uh, getting back to, to thresholds and concerns and things like that, were there other legitimacy to any of the concerns that people have raised about how big a guy this is or isn't or, you know, length or lack thereof, height, lack thereof, weight, lack thereof, things like that? Were there things that you found that made you – that you would agree with in terms of some of those concerns and other things that maybe people are overblowing about some of those concerns, Jim? Oh, well, I really don't know what people are, as you know, Bill, I mean, a lot of times I don't really, I mean, sometimes I do read some of the concerns. Uh, sometimes people are concerned about things that really aren't that concerning or important. Uh, and then there's also people who, have concerns, but they don't even know the concerns exist. So there's a little bit of that too. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm just saying, like there's 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 just things where people pay attention so much to wide receiver uh, hand size that they don't even look at uh, arm length, uh, which I think is just a little bit more important when it comes to uh, it's more so about how they win, and that's the biggest thing when it comes to wide receivers. Like how do they win? Um, guys like Ryan Switzer and Trent Taylor ended up with arm lengths that at least with, with my data going, you know, going back 10 plus years, uh, there hasn't been any starting wide receivers with their arm legs. But again, how do they win? Uh, does Trent Taylor win by, you know, mixing it up with a cornerback and, you know, punch him in, you know, punch him in the chest and going up and winning these one-on-one 50-50 balls? <laughs> no, he wins as a route runner, you know, getting uh, that separation and getting open. Same thing with Brian Switzer. You know, these are guys that win in that fashion. Um, so even though it is a bit of a concern that they had arm length that was, like, you know, really, really low, like lower than the actual, at least the, the guys in the – like there hasn't been a single NFL starter in the last 10-plus years with 28-inch arm length. Uh, I would also just say, well, how did they win? You know, I, and the same thing goes with hand size. I mean – for the most part, there are wide receivers who have started with seven and seven eighth inch hand size. Um, now, they weren't exactly all world crazy good wide receivers, but they were starters nonetheless. Uh, and I think there was a lot of wide receivers who did have below nine inch, a weight and seven eighth inch hand size is actually the threshold for you know all pro pro bowl types, but that that shouldn't kill them like that isn't like if josh reynolds ends up being uh nate burleson right or that type of wide receiver that isn't the worst thing in the world you know in terms of you no know, uh, projection that's, that's 10 know. years worth of game checks baby i'll take that <laughs> exactly so th- there's just lots of stuff like that that i was just kind of like man you guys just eh. and like gerald everett i mean to me i when i saw him on film he he looked a lot like a wide receiver he played like a wide receiver he's a wide receiver like that that's what he is it's just you slap the tight end name on him so not the biggest deal in the world at least to me that 
he, you know, size-wise, he's more of a wide receiver because that's really what he looked like on film. You know, he even runs routes kind of like wide receivers. So uh, there was guys like that. And this, uh, I guess the, I guess one of the other guys is, you know, Antonio Garcia from Troy. You know, you have lots of people going all crazy about, well, he had 32 and 7 eighth inch arm length. And, oh, it's so low. Uh, but that's the threshold for all pro Pro Bowl guys. You know, like that's the, the benchmark. Um, and there is no correlation from getting 32, uh, you know, from getting that level of arm length to really, really long arm, like the longest of arms. There is no, like, well, all the all-pro guys are at the upper end of that. It's really just about hitting that benchmark, and he hit, he hit that benchmark. So um, there's just guys like that, for example, that people are like, oh, we're down on Garcia because of his arm length, and, like, why? I mean, I'm just like there's no <laughs> basis other, other than preference. I mean, again, as I tell most people, a lot of these measurements and, and preferences are really, like, types of ice cream you like. Some people like chocolate, some people like vanilla, but they're both composed of the same thing, milk, sugar, you know, uh, stuff like that. Like, so there, it it still tastes good. It's still good. It's still going to give you pretty much the same sort of stuff. It's just that there, there's slight differences here and there. So I would say Garcia is just one of those guys that people are so down on, um, or at least somewhat down on based on that one thing or based on his weight when he pretty much hit everything for a potential multiple all-pro tackle. And, of course, I don't think he's going to be a multiple all-pro tackle, but at the very least, people that were downgrading him over that sort of stuff, I just felt was kind of, you know, crazy. Uh, so there was that situation. Of course, Forrest Lamp is another guy that people were really, really down on for whatever reason. Uh, I, I The only thing I would say about him is, you know, he, he is a guard. I mean, I saw a guard on film. I don't think it's that surprising that he would come in and, you know, and be the size of a guard and have the arm length of a guard. Uh, but that was really all that was really there. Like, in terms of, like, negatives, that was really all was there. And, of course, he got injured as the first day of practice. So there's kind of stuff like that that I thought was a little odd. Connor Harris from Lindenwood, who was one of those linebackers I was like, okay, you know, like, I there was a lot of kind of lower-level guys that kind of got invited. But he had – you know, 28, well, below 29-inch arm length, which is really, really low for that position. Um, there hasn't been a single starter, so he's just one of those guys that was kind of like that. Cam Sutton also had a uh, really, really short arm length. There hasn't been a starter with 29-inch arm length in the last couple, uh, you know, decades. So, But other than that, that's really about it. I mean, there also was lots of concern about hand size at quarterback when all those guys met the threshold, the threshold was nine inch, you know, nine inch uh, hand size. Uh, and this is going all the way back to, well, Michael Vick is the only other guy. He had eight and seven eighth inch um, hand size for Michael Vick, uh, which is the lowest, but then again, then again, he's Michael Vick. So, I mean, I don't hold that against him, you know, uh, but, um, but yeah, for the most part, there really wasn't that many um, red flags. And of course the running backs had, uh, arm length concerns, but most of them already knew that going in to the week, only in the sense that uh, there hasn't, there's only been about two starters in the last 10 plus years to have less than 31 inch arm length. And for the most part, there was five running backs there that had below 31 inch arm length uh, for the most part. Of course, Donald Pomfrey, I mean, and like you said, Bill, sure, work done uh, was 176 pounds. 
But Thunder Pumphrey is 169. You know, like he's seven pounds less. But what I will say is this. If he is going to go to the combine, I wouldn't put it past him. He might come in closer to 175, 176, unless he pulls a Randy Gregory, you know, or something like that. Um, but I, I I think he might improve on those sort of things. But for the most part, I mean, there wasn't too many concerns, at least when it comes to measurements or stuff. Um, so, I mean, that, that's the only thing I would say is, is a lot of the stuff is kind of overblown when it comes to a lot of these guys when it comes to their measurements. And again, at wide receiver, it really comes down to how they win. Um, you know, like how do they win? Are they a jump ball kind of player or are they more of a route runner that gets open that way? And for the most part, even though guys like Switzer, just my last point, even though guys like Switzer and, and Taylor had, you know, really, really below average arm length, I don't think that's really going to hurt them that much considering how they win, you know, how they win is a lot more important to what their physical characteristics are. So uh, that's the the last thing I'll say. Okay. And here's the the last thing I'll I'll sort of, or not the last, last thing, but one of the last things I'll I'll, I'll go to Trevor for. So I'm going to, you know, guess, congratulations, you're now a scout. And you're coming back to report. You're, you know, hey, it's Monday morning. And I want a guy or two at each position that we should look into. You know, shopping list, however you want to put it. Who are the guys, if you had to come back with, you know, 10 or so guys that we should really seriously think about, 10 to 12 guys that your team, you pick a team, whatever. If you have a a team already, I guess Tampa Bay is sort of obvious, I guess. Uh, But if you had to come back and say, these are the guys we need to bring in, we need to take a hard look at, we need to keep track of, who are the guys that you'd come back for and report to your your boss, you know, director of college scouting? Boss, these are guys. These are the guys. The guys I saw, these are the guys we need to keep up with, make contact with their agents, may want to bring them in for private workouts, things like that. Ooh, that is a... That is a fantastic question. That's a good question. Okay, so I'll, I'll answer that for um, the Buccaneers just because, you know, that's that's the team I'm covering, uh, and I know their needs so well. I, I think that yes. they're no, the, the Buccaneers' number one need is weapons for James Winston. Uh, yes. So, you know, if we're talking about senior bowl guys uh, that I think that they need to have their eye on. Correct. Uh, Josh Reynolds is obviously number one. He would be my top guy because uh, – <laughs> The Buccaneers were one Russell Shepard injury away from having to start Freddie Martino as uh, an NFL number two starter. So, um, and if you're and if you're and if your first response is who is that, then that is correct. I know exactly um, who that is. Um, terrific <laughs> special teams player and a guy who had a couple of good uh, arena seasons, if memory serves me correctly. Well, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised that you or Jim knows who he is because you guys literally know every prospect that's ever played football on the planet. So, um, <laughs> so I'm not surprised at that. But so Josh Reynolds would be my number one guy. Um, I, I, I guess you know, st- just sticking with wide receivers, a couple more names. Uh, Zay Jones. Um, if you're if you're going for a guy in the second second third round, I think that he was solid. Um, I like the Grambling State kid. Like I said before, Chad Williams. I I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't go really after Ryan Switzer at all, um, even if I thought that he had an okay week. They just, uh, I, like Jim said, I, I didn't see, you know, for, for measurables, it's 
you look at where he wins, and it's true he wins in a certain fashion, but the Buccaneers already have that in Adam Humphrey. You have that guy. Yeah, I agree. You have that yeah. guy, and he's bigger. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I got it. Exactly. So if, if you're going to if you're gonna look at anybody, I guess if you really think that Cooper Cup is that much better, and I, I suppose for the question, if you're talking about a guy you want to dig a little bit more deeper into, Cup plays the same position as Adam Humphrey does in the slot, yet he is bigger. And, you know, if he ends up being bigger and faster in the slot, then sure, an upgrade could be there. Uh, pass rusher is the next guy for the Buccaneers that they need. Uh, you know, Gerald McCoy is the guy on the inside who's been their franchise piece for a long time. No expense is a great addition um, last year, and I think that he's going to develop nicely and he's going to be great. But they really do need that other pass rusher opposite him. And they, they, they have William Goldson, who is more of a run-stopping defensive end on the other side, and Hidoki is a free agent. I expect them to bring him back, but they don't really have a rotational pass rusher to bring in outside of him. And um, they have uh, Robert Ayers, which they signed uh, last year, but he is a guy that they kind of kick inside the defensive tackle a little bit more than always keep on that edge. So they really do need a true edge rusher. So I think that um, Derek Rivers from Youngstown State is a guy you take a look at. That's a harder look at because I thought he had a good uh, a good practice. A uh, guy we haven't talked about yet, Dwayne Smoot. Who from Illinois, who I thought flashed a lot this week. I wasn't super high on him going into the week, but I thought he made plenty of plays, and especially coming around that edge, really being that speed edge rusher that uh, I think the Buccaneers would really like. Obviously, Tano Passino, anytime you have a guy with that kind of size as a true 4-3 defensive end, um, you look to see how much you could possibly get out of him to if he could be a a, a guy that who's reliable and a pass rusher there. Um, and then the last position that the Buccaneers uh, may need or probably their third biggest position of need, well, I guess tight end. You know, O.J. Howard and Evan Ingram are certainly going to be guys that they look at near the top there to bring in because they really do love their their, their two tight end sets. You, going, in, going into last year, head coach Dirk Cutter's first year, the plan was to have 6'5", Mike Evans, 6'5", Vincent Jackson, 6'5", <laughs> Austin Safarian Jenkins. Austin Safarian Jenkins, right. Right. I mean, uh, six for four, six for five, Cameron Bray, and then Doug Martin in the backfield. Well, um, all but one of those players <laughs> ended the year playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, healthy, and in, and in that last game. So uh, that theory for Cutter is still there, and they are still going to want to do so. When we talk about a player who's a realistic option, number 19 for the Buccaneers, if uh, O.J. Howard is there, they're going to take a really hard look at him, and that's, I think, a guy that they're going to look into. Um, like I said, Evan Ingram as well. I know they're intrigued about Michael Roberts, the tight end from Toledo. Um, you know, he and Jim can attest to this. I thought he did okay at the Senior Bowl. He stood out a little – or, sorry, I think he um, he stood out in the Shrine Games, but here at the Senior Bowl, uh, handling some of these better linebackers and pass rushers and pass protection, as well as holding on to the ball through some of these better defenders. He struggled a little bit more this week. so. Uh, we'll see how interested they really are in him with that. And then finally, the safety position. And I think the, the top two guys are the guys that they're going to go for if they're going to pull the trigger on one of them. It's either going to be Justin Evans from Texas a and or uh, Melifonwu from UConn. And, uh, boy, having Melifonwu as a strong safety opposite Keith Handy, who ended the year on a very strong note, had uh, at least three or four takeaways within the last six weeks once he became the bona fide, you know, full-time, non-rotational free safety for them. So they're going to go into 2017 with him as their free safety. I really believe that. But coming up with a strong safety, possibly a rookie, um, if they can get Melifonwu in that position, you know, with the length and his physicality, 
that would be huge. So I think that's something that they got to take a look at. Okay. And I'll, I'll sort of the same scenario as you, Jim. So, you know, you've been promoted. <laughs> you know, the Raiders have long needed a, a slightly different approach to the draft room. I think you and I have discussed this in the past. So you come back from Mobile. You know, you you meet with Reggie and some other people within the organization. Same question. You know, who who do we who are the guys that were there that we need to have look more deeply into? Maybe bring in for private workouts, things like that. And that commitment to excellence. Right. Well, I I hate to say running back, but I mean we can do better. And I know I'm not. I'm like the one of the few Raiders fans that actually say that, but. Like we can do better, you know. Like there, there's, there's, there's some better things that could happen. And Kareem Hunt would definitely be uh, someone that you know we we could do better with. Uh, you know, uh, Matt Days was mentioned before. He, I think he's flashed a little bit in terms of what he could bring to the table. Daniel Pumphrey, even you know, like we had a lot of we tried the running back by committee sort of thing. Humphrey added to the list. I wouldn't be too opposed to it, you know, getting him at a certain spot and seeing what happens. I mean, that wouldn't be the biggest deal. Devion Smith uh, from Michigan, another guy that I wouldn't be too opposed to at a certain point of the draft. Uh, at wide receiver, I'll just say this much. I would be very surprised if the Raiders didn't take Jalen Robinett from Air Force, um, only because he seems Only a lot the, like the ghost of Al Davis would visit Reggie in his sleep if he did. Is that well, what you're we've we've gotten guys <laughs> like him a lot. Uh, Bryce Butler from San Diego State, for example, similar type of guy. Uh, of course, uh, uh, the wide receiver, the Todd Watkins, wide uh, yeah, uh, Andre Holmes, uh, Andre Holmes, exactly. We, but there's a bunch of them. I mean, guys. we we don't we can keep going. <laughs> you know, the tall guy with long arms and stuff like that. But it but is an utter project. A guy that really is going to take a lot of time to develop, um, and is going to flash. Like he's going to look really good in preseason. Like, I'll just say that much. Like Robinette is going to be one of those preseason guys that people like shooting up. He's going to be all like preseason. He's going to make a lot of people all yeah. preseason list. Exactly. I would like a guy like Josh Reynolds. I would like a guy like Ryan Switzer. I would like – I mean, all the wide receivers there, Taewon Taylor. Like, I like all those guys. I, I know, again, wide receiver isn't like the biggest thing for the Raiders, but I kind of think it is just because we have Cooper. You have one really, Patrick. really good receiver, and you have one and guy who's good and going to be even better soon, and then right. a bit of a drop-off. Guys. Yeah, I mean, we have lots of guys. We have guys. We have good guys. I mean, again, they're good guys. Everybody has good guys. Everybody has that, you know, that wide receiver, third, fourth guy that is, is good. You know, ah, I like that guy. Uh, but we don't have, you know, yeah. like dudes. You know, like that's the dude, <laughs> if you will. So I, I would say kind of getting those types of, adding a guy in the slot. Like that's the biggest thing to me. Is I know people talk about Cooper as a slot guy. He can play in the slot, but just getting another dynamic threat in the slot. I think would help Carr out a lot. Uh, and also, considering the fact that we're throwing the ball so quickly anyway, based on the offensive line play, which I'll get to a little bit later, uh, I think that that would definitely be something that to look into, which brings us to tight ends. You know, uh, give me all the tight ends. You know, Evan Ingram, uh, <laughs> O.J. Howard, uh, Michael Roberts even. Uh, who so I, you're going to work out all the tight ends? Is that what you're saying? 
<laughs> We're bringing them all in. If you're a tight end, get, here's, and, and get a play me. kicker from Jim. <laughs> and believe me, Clive Wolford, I mean, I like Clive Wolford. He's okay. Uh, I, I felt like we paid a little bit too much for him, uh, you know, in terms of how high we drafted him. We had other needs. But, like, again, I just feel like if we had another dynamic threat in the slot, uh, that would be something interesting to 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 add to the team. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think OJ Howard will make it past the Ravens though. But uh, I would be very it'd be very interesting. Uh, and of course, on the offensive line, we we don't have tackles, man. I don't know what to say. Like our tackle situation is, we have a Donald Penn who's kind of on his last leg, uh, almost literally. Don't you uh, don't you insult Buccaneers legend Donald Penn like that? I, hey, I love Donald Penn, but the guys <laughs> behind Donald Penn are Minnelik Watson, Austin Howard, uh, Vidal Alexander. Like it's it's not good, guys. Like it's just not <laughs> it's not good. So I mean, guys like Antonio Garcia, you know, Adam Biznawati, uh, you know, Julian Davenport, Taylor Mouton, just somebody. And, and to kind of, or we could get a guy like Dan Feeney or, uh, you know, Forrest Lamp and like kick, uh, you know, Otsumeli, you know, to the uh, tackle spot, do something. Because, I mean, I'm not going to say that Derek Carr was totally successful based on scheme, but it was pretty obvious that when you take, a, when you take the quarterback out and get through the football as quickly as possible, and put in a quarterback who doesn't get rid of the football as quickly as possible and cut or cook, bad things happen. So um, that was just the main thing that I, I felt like uh, that, that that definitely needs to be addressed is a tackle spot. I felt like there were some guys there that had some potential. You know, I mean, Antonio Garcia is just one of those guys that he really is kind of coach him up special. He does have a lot of really interesting athletic qualities. We'll see what happens in the combine. But, I mean, just – Somebody, I mean Jake Fisher. Even I mean, you know my love for Jake Fisher, though. But yeah, I like, do. Just, I do know your love for Jake Fisher. Yeah. Just, just somebody like that, or or Jason Spriggs. Even you know he was another guy that I was really, and of course we took Jihad Ward instead of him. But yeah, you know just, just that tackle, man. We really <laughs> need a good tackle. Uh, we, it's something that has been neglected because we can get away with it because of scheme, but obviously. I don't like, as always, I do not like players that are liabilities. And you you can scheme or you can scheme around liabilities. You know, you can you can do that long enough, but then you end Until, up in the Super Bowl, and right. Von Miller is coming around that corner, and Demarcus Ware is coming around that corner, and then it all falls apart. So, like, you can get away with liabilities, but then there just will come a point where you don't. And I think with Derek Carr already having, you know, his first major injury, I think we really need to – that tackle spot needs to be – it's got to be fixed. You know, it's got to be improved. And I think there's a lot of guys there that um, that I would definitely add. And, and keep in mind, Tyler Orlowski, I know we already have a center that we pay a lot of money in Rodney Hudson. And believe me, I like Rodney Hudson as well. But just give me some Orlowski. Just, you know, just – who well, maybe put him at guard, you know, who knows. But just – Something to improve uh, the situation there, I think, would be very uh, beneficial. Ethan Posick, we'll figure it out. You know, if he's going to play center or something, or 
I know some people even said tackle. I think that's a little crazy, but he, he does have <laughs> a little he crazy, but he can I mean, best case scenario is you got a guy who might duck free it a little bit where if you right, had yeah. to play him at tackle, you don't feel terrible about it. Yeah. And he but, has, yeah. and he actually has some, some film of him actually playing tackle at LSU. It was a lot of yep. goal line packages and stuff, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's some stuff there, but yeah, I mean, you know, just throwing that out there, uh, pass rush wise. Hmm. I know we spent a lot of money again, Jihad Ward, high round pick, uh, <laughs> Chili Calhoun, pretty uh, high round pick. It would be cool if we got Hassan Reddick. It'd be cool if we, you know, Keontae Davis even, I mean, he was the guy that, you know, had a couple, at least what I heard anyways, but when I went and watched his film, I, I felt like there was a lot of positives there that, you know, this could be a guy that we could get late that could really improve things. Uh, but yeah, a lot of, most of the guys are really uh, pass rush wise. If we just had another guy uh, on the other side of Khalil Mack, it, we could really start to get things cooking, you know, in terms of uh, pass rush and, and all those sort of things. And Tano, Tano, you know, from Villanova, he's not a guy that I would touch anywhere in day one or day two, just based on the film I've seen of him and also based on he's just such a raw player. But you can't deny that when you have a six foot seven, two hundred and eighty pound, you know, basically a Mario Williams uh Madden. Darn like if you went into Madden <laughs> and you wanted to make Mario Williams, that would be Tano. Like that that is what those measurables are. I'd at least want to play around with that in day three, at least with me. I know some teams may get crazy and go, you know, Somebody you know get crazy. Up. Yeah, so that'll go. So my own reach, <laughs> and and you could it could pay off. I'm not even denying that. Like that type of it is a physical mismatch. Um, like this is something that is really difficult to deal with uh, when it comes to offensive linemen in general. Like the number one killer for short offensive linemen is tall off tall defensive linemen, uh, which yes. is why tall just ask linemen. Julius Peppers about how that it's works out any, with yes. <laughs> You know, exactly. Julius Peppers, especially, man. Julius Peppers makes people, he doesn't get enough credit. I'll just say that much. Some of his (laughs) film is a lot, like I said, with Lions on the Serengeti, you know, like that's Julius Peppers at times with offensive linemen. Just because when he, when he wins a leverage battle at that height, it's, it's pretty much, it's, it's bad. It's ugly. So, um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely guys like that I, I would definitely consider. Jalil Johnson, of course, you know, again, big, big fan of him coming into the week. And I, I, I still think that he would be a good, I know we have Mario Edwards, but. Huh. That's not enough to satisfy you, Mario? It, or does, it, does it fill that need for you, Jim? It, it really, again, it just comes back to, my biggest issue is a Ra- I don't know, as a Raiders fan, my only big issue is that, a lot of the positions I think we need to get are positions that we've already spent draft picks on, which makes me think that they'll probably go somewhere else. I hope that isn't the case, but I'm just saying. But, yeah, Jill Johnson would definitely be a guy I'd really want, um, especially because I think he could be there late first. He could go higher than that. Uh, we may not even have a chance at him. But he is someone that I think is, is very disruptive, Very was extremely productive this season. Um, and I think there's a lot of positives there when it comes to him. Uh, linebacker-wise, at this event, as you know, Bill, um, I may put too much emphasis into a linebacker's ability to cover, 
uh, to, to a detriment. But it's just something where, again, every once in a while they're going to be in a situation where they have to cover. And if you can't cover, you end up putting a safety, you know, turning a safety into that, you know, you Buchanan, for example. So, like, I just feel like none of the guys there really the – only, the only guy really that I would – uh, feel decent about his Ben Gideon from Michigan. I felt like he could possibly play kind of a classic inside linebacker type uh, in ter- sort of that role. But other than that, there just wasn't a ton of guys that I was really enamored with. Of course, a cornerback, Arian Pinton's my guy. I don't think he'll be the Raiders guy. The Raiders have been very Seahawkish when it comes to cornerbacks. Yeah. They want him yes. to be 32-inch arm length or more. They want him to be really tall. Doesn't matter if they're kind of, you know, past their prime, uh, you know, Sean Smith, for example. You know, it doesn't matter if there's, you know, just stuff. But Pinson is a guy that honestly is a slot receiver. I don't see what the issue is. I mean, if you if you have a you guy need, like that, you need a good slot corner, man. Otherwise, you'll get eaten alive by the Gene Edelmans of the world. Well, and pretty the... much. But but also yeah. take plays, man. And, again, I'm not saying yep. he's going to be a guy that's going to go really, really high. Uh, at all, but if you could get that guy later, I think you're going to get a lot of value out of him. Just as a guy that's going to be making plays, he's going to get picks, he's going to get turnovers, uh, he's going to surprise you a lot. He's one of those guys that if if you didn't account for him, like that was the biggest thing to me, is there were a lot of times where Penton would be playing boundary corner at Missouri, and you could pretty much deal with him, but then he'd go into the slot and the quarterback would try to get cute and throw it over the, you know, over the <laughs> middle in those situations and Pinton would just pick it off and, you know, and, and, uh, and do his thing. So he's just one of those guys that's kind of like that for me. Same thing with Cornelder, you know, in terms of a, as a, oh. you know, a slot nickel guy, you can really and do a lot of those things. guys are going to be there for you probably around probably later. Yeah. Four. Or yeah. Around there. Five, uh, yeah, maybe. Jordan Lewis as well. Different, you know. Yeah, Jordan right, Lewis similar. is well, different too. To me, with Lewis and, and Elder, there, there's a lot of. I mean, honestly, Lewis and Elder is a lot of similarities in how they play in terms of, you know, their ability to track the football, their ability to find the football and make plays on the ball. It won't when it's in the air and in coverage. So I mean, there's a lot of positives, you know, in terms of you know what they can do. Trey White because. Trey White's been pretty much rumored to be a Raider since last year, even so. Like <laughs> it's probably going to happen, but uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't hate Trey White. I felt like he improved a lot in terms of physicality this year, uh, but I just, I don't know. The, the explosiveness is the only big thing to me. He's definitely fast. He definitely can, you know, move well. Hip, you know, hips wise is, is fairly more fluid this year as well, but. And I don't have any issues with them. I just feel like there might be better guys, better value in terms of stuff like that. And the last guy I'll say is just safety. We already have our kind of, you know, bulldog-like safety. Who isn't the safest guy? They ended up drafted 14th overall from, you know, uh, from Missouri. Well, not Missouri, but West Virginia. Why not get OB, Melifon, Wu? I have no problems with that. I felt like on – the only thing I will say about him is that's a nice little tandem now, you guys, if you provide those two. Exactly. The only thing I will say about Obi is is he still is in the place where the his physical talent isn't exactly matching up to his like his his actual potential, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Like he there's a lot right. of things where like there's there's 
there's stuff that he isn't quite there yet when it comes to finishing plays, when it comes to, you know, getting uh, turnovers as much as he, as he should based on the film I saw and, uh, you know, tackling and all these other areas. But, and he is really, really tall for a safety. I mean, six and four is like, you know, really, really tall. But if you're talking about a strong safety, you're talking about a guy that you may play a little bit closer to the box, you know, line him up against tight ends, you know, stuff like that, to be that kind of guy or a force safety is like to call him at times. Uh, I think he definitely would fit that role, that role really well. And I, have, I really have no problems with that. I mean, everybody I've, I've talked to who's had contact with him says, you know, he's a really, you know, I have most Connecticut guys, really smart guy, really hard worker. Uh, so, I would not be surprised if the Raiders even took him, you know, in terms of late first. And he was a guy that I was mocking late first back in November. And I was just, I don't know, I was just waiting, Bill, because, you know, Dress Twitter is very gift-driven when it comes to hype on prospects. And um, there was a lot of gifts to be made. I'm not the best at making gifts, I'll just say that much. But uh, but there was a lot of times where I was watching him on film, and I'm like, this is a, this is like he just he's there, you know. Like it's it's easy to see uh, the physical talent and everything else, and the plays he was able to make even. Um, so he would definitely be a guy that I would not be very uh, sad if we got, you know, because uh, we we do need safety help, and he should he should pass the length requirements as well. I'll just say that much too. So. There shouldn't be any sort of physical threshold that he, he he that he can't pass to make the Raiders roster. I'll just say that much. So I would say he's another guy that I would definitely want to follow uh, throughout the process. Hey guys, yeah, I, uh, I just got to let you know I got to get out of here. Well, I figured you did. Well, tell people before you run. Tell people where they can find and follow the stuff that you do. Your work, your writings, your your musings, anything that you do. Yeah, um, uh, so my, my Twitter handle, obviously the best way to keep up everything that I'm doing, uh, all, all the content, all the terrible jokes, all the awful gifts, um, at Tampa Bay Trey, um, and then uh, pewterreport.com is where I'm working for. I'm covering the Tampa Bay Buccaneers year-round, but we're doing a lot, a lot of draft coverage as well, so uh, that's where I am. Excellent. So now I, I can add to my collection of Tampa Bay guys, uh, so now I've got Mark the Shark and Tampa Bay Trey. Uh, I will be in Tampa for next year's Shrine Game, and so I will definitely, or you know, be looking for you and be looking for uh, absolutely my buddy, my, my buddy Mark the Shark. Yeah, that'll be great. Indeed, thank you, uh, Trevor Sikama, aka Tampa Bay Trade, one of my favorite Tampa Bay guys, and you have a standing invitation. Uh, so if ever you have a an itch, jump in and talk ball. We always have room for you. Hey, I appreciate it, man. I had a lot of fun tonight. Thanks for having me. Oh, the pleasure's mine. Thank you so much. Uh, and he was a stalwart. He was with us the longest. And we will be getting a little late action from Matt Corocio. He's waiting for his baby to be asleep. He is a new father. God bless him. Uh, but once his baby is completely asleep and in a sleep that will, you know, last, he'll be hopping on towards the end. It's funny to me, Jim, and you mentioned, you know, how it is that you know, there's people you sort of try to tell people about and try to tell them about and something happens, you know, uh, whether it be senior role practices, whether it be, you know, something in a, the bowl season or some, you know, some something that happens, some catalytic event that sort of <laughs> brings people to a player. It's interesting to see how that works. And, I mean, I'm torn about the senior bowl. I, I love it for all the reasons that we love football 
love football. I mean, it's got the elements of why it is that you fell in love with games. Obviously, it's one of those things that you see some pretty significant overreactions. Uh, we'll see some of those. Are seeing, we are seeing some of those. I am glad, though, that it's generated buzz around OB. I'm glad it's generated buzz around your guy, Jaleel Johnson. Um, Cornelder got a little bit more love. Not as much as I should have gotten, but a little bit more love than he'd be getting. I've been talking about Taiwan Taylor since, I don't know, was it last year? Um, so I'm in year two of telling the world about Taiwan Taylor. The word seems to be finally, finally getting out. And that's the, the thing I've noted about certain, the way certain players, you know, the arc, the story arc, I guess you can almost say, around certain players. Some guys you can see, you know, Deshaun Watson is an example. example. Um, Going back to he gets injured as a freshman, so you know, but our 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 appetite's whetted already. We keep hearing he's going to be terrific, and you know he beats back the challenges of Cole Stout and Chad Swag, and then like I said, unfortunately gets hurt. Then we finally get to see him full force the next year, and he's amazing, and we're giving him the love, and he's being compared to well, basically any of the really good mobile quarterbacks that have ever played football ever in life, um, and then this year both due to you know, some things that he did do on tape that was what we were hoping to see this year and just the, I don't know what you want to call it, fatigue, whatever effect you want to call it, where, you know, people are ready to turn the page to Lamar Jackson or Sam Donald or, uh, well, somebody. Um, somebody new. Um, it happens. It happens. It happens every year to some guys. And then you have the guys that sort of pop on the scene late. You know, the Noah Spence sort of popped back on the scene late, and then there was a lot of love surrounded him, at least initially. Uh, we see this happen every year. So it'll happen to, it's, I guess it's happening to, you know, um, uh, Pena this year, right? I mean, the, he's been doing what he's been doing for a while. This is, you know, he was a FCS All-American last year. You know, <laughs> this is his second year being uh, a consensus FCS All-American. Uh, and now, you know, like there's this real buzz and Jack Twitter around him. Son Reddick has been a really good player for years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> undersized. You know, I think the first time I spotted him, he was like 217, 218 pounds or something playing, you know, Sam linebacker, um, you know, and some defensive end uh, at Temple and impressing. You know, he was doing really well even at, you know, he was nowhere near 230. I, I don't know what, wherever he was listed, he looked about 215. I think he was listed as about 218, 219. Um, then it was back 222, I think, it was next year. And then this year, you know, obviously he's put on some weight. But it's interesting how, like, I wonder why it is some players, is it just exposure? Like, why the arc is different for certain players in terms of sort of the, you know, I don't want to call it loveometer, but whatever you mean, sort of the, you know, how it is some guys, it's like this very slow build. Some it's just wrap it up and then wrap it down. And then others, you know, it's this slow, slow descent, you know, after riding high for a while and kind of a slow plateau and then slow descent as people get, I don't know, overexposed, whatever. I mean, why do you think that is? The, the sort of predictable draft Twitter eating its young kind of thing. Well, I think a lot of it just stems, like this is the biggest thing is, is, as much as I'm like really obsessed with the draft, of course, as a lot of other people are, 
Not everybody is. So um, you're gonna have you're gonna have guys that are, that are really hyped up at the beginning of the year for whatever reason, and they don't perform to that level. But not everybody's paying attention. You know, not everybody is uh, their team isn't out of the playoffs yet. You know, stuff like that. So you know, once that happens. Once their team isn't in the playoffs anymore, they're going to start watching film. That's why the Browns in particular were like one of the first to, you know, uh, to really get into the draft because they really don't have anything to, you know. I'm just saying, if you. So if you the Venn diagram the game, between draft Twitter and Browns Twitter probably has a very high level of overlap, is what you're saying. Exactly. If you, if you did a study, uh, I would not be surprised that teams that are losing, their fans are probably paying attention more to free agency and the draft and stuff like that. Um, but in general, I just think, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of barriers to information. And the only thing I, I mean by that is uh, not, not barriers in terms of Internet, but just barriers in terms of time, in terms of resources, in terms of, you know, people have lives, people have jobs, people do things. So you're not, you know, always have time to, you know, to to watch film on a guy or, or, you know, stuff like that. You, you have other obligations. You have other things that you want to do. You want to go fishing. You want to go hunting. You want to, you know, go to your, you know, whatever club, you know, whatever club you like to do. Like there's lots of other things that kind of get in the way of things and, and you have to rely a lot on other people, which is okay but I don't, you know, again, it does always give you proper perspective. It, it depends on how good they are at, at, at communicating that information. Um, and the only criticism I have of the draft media in general is it's way too based on, I mean, it makes sense why you're not going to, like, trash a guy because if you trash a guy, then you're not going to get information anymore, you know, like, because I'm not, I'm not going to say you should trash a guy, but I'm just saying, like, it, it, criticisms of a player are things that don't really get emphasized a lot because you don't want to emphasize the criticism to the point where it becomes like a major negative and then and then people, you know, kind of throw you under the bus and stuff like that. So I would just say there's a little bit too much influence with agents and, and stuff like that, but it's kind of a give and take because the, the, the media in general is focused on where players are going to get drafted, not necessarily whether or not they're going to be good or not. Um, and as a result... And really, because it's kind of entertainment anyways. I mean, people get entertained by, like, what could they be? It's like Tano, you know. Wouldn't it be really entertaining? Wouldn't it be a great story if this Villanova defensive end who is the size of Mario Williams became almost as good as Mario Williams in the NFL um, and had almost a similar sort of career? But obviously it's a little bit different than the perspective of most teams uh, and uh, and everything else like that. So uh, I don't know. I I kind of again I kind of get upset about it only because again I, I tell you something. These things happen during the year, anyways. I mean, uh, just uh, and I don't mean to bring up Matt Miller, but I guess I will only because like he was talking about prospects all throughout the year. Uh, it's just that he was only focusing on a couple guys, you know, here and there um, when when we get to this point of the year, everybody should be focusing on, you know, more play. I don't know. Everybody should be focusing on more players. Everybody should be questioning. Cause that's the biggest thing to me is questioning draft position um, because there's too many people that get locked into, well, this guy at the beginning of the year was considered a top 20 pick. So he will be a top 20 pick 
for the rest of the year and into next year, which isn't the case. I mean, you shouldn't be locked into these frames of mind. You should, you should be looking at, okay, like there was one scout in particular, you know, I was at the shrine and I actually talked to the scout and he was saying he was having lots of issues this year because there was a guy that was rated over another guy and the guy that he was rated over, like he basically was telling his, his uh, scouting department guys, like this guy's better than this guy, you know, like he should be over this guy. And then he is, the response he got was, well, all the, you know, the, the metrics, we, a lot of the metrics they use is like draft position, which they get for media and stuff like that. Well, his draft position is like here and this guy's here. So we should have this guy over this guy because this guy will go later. But then he was like, listen, man, he's the better player. He should be rated over him because he's the better player. And you have that sort of conflict of, you know, who is good, who is, you know, who's better, you know. Um, and sometimes teams kind of get caught, caught up to that. But I just really think you should just go for your instincts. And, and maybe you will be wrong, you know. Maybe I will be wrong at times in my evaluation of a guy. And I'll eventually, uh, as the process goes on, because, again, it's a process. It's from August, at least with me, it's you know, from August until draft day. So my mind will change. I'll watch more tape on a guy and go, oh, well, that doesn't – there's this issue and this issue. You know, I was a little too high on him or, you know, stuff like that. So I, it should evolve. And uh, that's the biggest thing, I think, is people get too locked into, you know, a certain mindset and it doesn't really get swayed or doesn't they – don't, they don't question what they hear enough is all I'm trying to say. So – I think there's a little bit more of that, a little bit more people actually questioning why guys are rated as high as they are. Uh, I think there there would be a little bit better coverage of the draft and stuff like that if if, if there was just more questioning of positions and really going back and watching film and really pinpointing, you know, again, like Jill Johnson, it was pretty evident at the beginning of the year that Jill Johnson was a legit first-round kind of guy. Uh, but it just takes so long for everybody to catch up. And I think a lot of that's because people are just so stuck in the mindset of what they were rated before the season versus what actually happened during the season. So um, Montreal so Adams has to be better because we hear he's better. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, there's like, like Solomon Thomas is another example. Solomon Thomas was a guy that was being mocked in, in day two consistently uh, when I was mocking him in the top 10, you know, uh, and honestly, I was yep. a little low on him at that time, uh, yep. back back at that time period. And I will not be surprised if he's gone in the third or fourth pick of the draft. And a lot of the criticisms that I usually get when I do these boxes, well, he's not going to be there. He's going to be in the second round. He's going to be in the third round because, why? Because the media thing said he's going to be in the like. So that's what I'm saying. There's too much of that. If people just looked at the film, looked at the traits, and looked at what's po- you know what is positive, what works, what doesn't work, uh, and and really follow up on guys. Like that's a bigger thing too. It's following up on players. You know, if like if if someone says suggests a player, you should follow it up. Go check them out. You know, like it shouldn't be like a you know, oh, that, that was, that's nice, you know, type of thing. And then later on, you kind of catch up. But 
you know, if somebody says the guy is really standing out and really performing and really flashing or whatever term you want to use, you should take that time to go check him out and see what's happening, you know, with the guy. Well, that's, uh, I want to thank you for, for Ford, uh, speaking of, because I kept, I heard people whining about the safety class early in the season. I was like, what? You know, I thought it was at least a decent class. And then as I watched, you know, like I said, you put me on to Ford, and I'd seen him before. I just hadn't really paid attention. And I was like, okay, oh, I can see you do this, you can do that, you do this. I mean, I'm not gonna. Once again, I'm not gonna say he's. I mean, the the go-to comparison now for every undersized sort of safety linebacker tweener now has become DeAndre Cannon, which is incorrect bad. and lazy, but wrong. <laughs> bad and wrong. Yes, I don't even know why say, it all those... <laughs> I, I mean, let me. Do, I, I don't know. This this is probably not gonna be the last time, but I, I just have to say it again. <laughs> Why did D.O.B. Okay, what made D.O.B. Cannon become D.O.B. Cannon? Well, you have to have a situation where you have a lot of really good safeties. You know, you have a lot of excess safety depth. You have Tony Jefferson, you have Tyron Matthew, you have Rashad Johnson. Uh, All those guys legitimately can be starting safeties, and then you just added D.O.B. Cannon to the mix. You have a team that has four or more legitimate starting safeties, which – Exactly. We're in a league that is starved for decent safeties right now, Jim. I I don't know if you've noticed. (laughs) Yeah. You have all these guys that can be a starting safety on any team, really. Uh, On any squad, they could become the starting man on that team. Now – they're not all elite, but, you know, well, Tyron Matthew, you know, probably be somewhere close. But, like, you know, but they're, but they're all good. They all, they all can do that, that role and do it well uh, and not look bad, if you will. Uh, so you have a situation like that. Then you add on to the fact that your linebacker situation is terrible. You have one linebacker that consistently gets in trouble with drugs, uh, domestic violence issues, whatever, uh, and you also have – linebackers who just can't cover whatsoever, uh, you know, Kevin Minter, you know, stuff like that. Like, you have a situation where your linebacker situation <laughs> is not good. Um, not just was never addressed. You either drafted poorly or you didn't really get the guys for agency that you needed. And as a result, you have this problem where you can't cover tight ends in the slot uh, because you just can't, you don't have anybody who can cover tight ends. Like, it, and it becomes a major eyesore every single game where you have these tight ends, every tight end you could think of is getting these 20, 30, 40 yard plays over the middle because your linebackers can't cover them. And then of course you have a guy at safety who while at Washington state was in charge of all the defensive calls was basically the brains of that defense, you know, was basically doing all the calls that a typical linebacker was going to make, you know, getting everybody lined up, properly across the entire defense. Um, and also, I mean, again, Neil Buchanan is a strong safety build. I mean, he's not exactly, uh, you know, he's not like a five foot ten, 200-pound safety. Like, he no. he has some size to him, you know. Uh, so you, you add all that stuff together and you get Neil Buchanan. How do you get Neil Buchanan? You get a guy who is a terrific safety, probably one of the best, easily one of the best metrically testing safeties uh, to come out in the last 15 years based on athleticism, based on his production, 
uh, and based on just his measurables, I mean, he's pretty dang close to Sean Taylor, to be honest. Um, he's not exactly Sean Taylor, but he's pretty darn close. And then you add in the situation that I just illustrated where you have excess safeties, your linebackers are bad, so you so you end up putting him there. And he doesn't perform badly because he had experience in a situation similar to that at Washington State. He's asked to do a lot of the similar things that he, he had to do at Washington State, and he performs it well. Now, is he a better safety? Yeah. I think it's he's honestly wasted now because he is, you know, he is a safety. He's a legit safety who's being asked to do a role that he can do, but he's not going to do the best because he just has, you know, he just, that isn't his position. Like he's out of place. He's out of, you know, but, but he works because he's such a good player, football intelligence wise and everything else like that. Right. To, to By be the same good. token, if you play a lot of zone, you could get away with playing that corner as well. I wouldn't recommend yeah. it, but I bet you a dollar well, to a donut he could do it. I'll just say this much. You know, can uh, tested athletically identical to Keith Lee, and I don't think he's doing too bad <laughs> in man coverage. So uh, I'm just saying, like, as a cornerback, I don't think it would be too much of an issue. It would just be a sort of issue of, you know, getting – uh, him coached up to play that position, you know, at a higher level. Uh, so I, that's really what it comes down to. That's how you get Deion Buchanan. You don't get Deion Buchanan uh, because of all these sort of, uh, well, he's a tweener and then he did it. Like he was never a tweener. He was a legit safety. He was someone who could tackle. He was someone that could play in coverage well. He was someone that could get interceptions and turnovers. He was someone that could do everything. He was someone who had, uh, a very, very high athletic ability uh, and size. That is that is how you get Deion Buchanan. And this sort of, like, let's make the next Deion Buchanan is just not going to work because you have to have all those qualities in place. You have to have a situation where you don't have good linebackers. You have to have a situation where you have lots of excess safeties where it wouldn't be, like, you, you have a situation where you have all these, extra guys around and you just have to move people around. Like it gives you the freedom to do that. And then of course you have to have a player like Joe McKinnon that is really, really rare. Like it's rare to find a guy who has had experience making the defensive calls like a linebacker at the college level on top of having the physical capability, at least to hold up a bit at that spot. So that's how you get Joe McKinnon. Uh, you don't get Deion McKinnon because the guy plays, you know, in the slot occasionally. You know, like that's just not, that's not how you get Deion McKinnon. So uh, it, it's I just find it uh, it's just lazy, but it, it's just a lot of different things. But <laughs> I I just think the whole Deion McKinnon hype and and now the sort of hype is falling a bit because people are like, well, Deion McKinnon isn't as good as we hyped him up to be. Well, he's not a linebacker. He just safety playing linebacker you know like 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 the one thing is we always and you know this but like we always get into this sort of conversation of like where's the nfl going you know like what's going to happen you know uh, things are is the running game going to come back uh, probably not but uh is this going to happen our tight ends our h-back tight end is going to become in vogue again uh you know uh, <laughs> stuff like that always happens uh, where we get in a conversation like, where's the NFL going? Is linebacker play going to turn into safeties? Uh, you know, all these sort of things. And 
I, I just don't think you can force that kind of stuff. You just have to look at what works, you know, and, and what doesn't work and then go from there. Joe Buchanan worked, but he didn't work for all the, you know, the reasons that you think he like worked and how he yes. exists. Right. And, <laughs> you know, it, that's the reason you think he did. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's my biggest issue is just, a lot of the Dion stuff, like, oh, you're going to be Dion Buchanan and all that sort of kind of stuff, like, a lot of stuff you're basing it on are are very superficial things. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot like, well, he's six foot five, 240 pounds, so obviously he could be the next Tom Brady. Like, that's just not how this works, guys. Like, um, and the only thing I would say is a lot of times when it comes to coaching, uh, which is another thing I've kind of noticed, and it's not a bad thing, but, you know, human beings are very pattern oriented, you know, when it comes to their decision-making, you know, they see a pattern and they, they see things happen. And as you get older, you start to see things happen again and again and again. And then you you choose to avoid these situations because you know, what's going to happen. Like, you know, you know, if you go to that part of town, uh, stuff could happen. You know, if you, if you get into a situation uh, and that's the similar thing with coaches, you know, coaches have had success with certain players. So they look at a guy and they go, he has, he looks the same as this guy I've had success with. He sounds the same like this guy I had success with. And because of that, I'm going to think that he's going to be the next guy, you know, and, and every coach is like that. Every coach is going to look at things that have worked in the past and traits that have, you know, get traits, things that patterns of traits, things that they've had success with in the past, they're going to go to that well. Again, Al Davis, for example, forever to the grave was trying to get back to the, you know, play man coverage, you know, on every single snap with shutdown corners and a, and a pass rush that just never stops, you know, basically trying to recreate what made the Raiders so great in the 70s and 80s. Um, so all they needed was Ted Hendricks and Michael Haynes and Lester Hayes and Lyle Zato and Howie Log and Sean Jones, and he would have been all good. Exactly. But the problem is, is that you're not looking at, again, this is where a lot of metrics comes in, is you have these, again, you have these connections to things that a lot of times are very superficial. You know, a lot of times it's just on the surface you see a guy who is a certain size or you see a guy that has a certain personality or you see a guy that has a certain thing and you have success with it when a lot of times it may be a false success. It may be something where, yeah, they had this in common, but they also had these other things, but you weren't paying attention to that. You were just paying attention on the fact that they had these other qualities that were similar and that she went uh, to that well. And that happens a lot in scouting as, uh, too, uh, which is, you know, in general, I mean, you're trying to get guys that look like the guy that's great. But a lot of times what makes the guy that's great is could be just happenstance, could be the luck, could be just what happened, you know. Like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, you know, they happen. But that doesn't mean that the next 10 years the greatest quarterbacks are going to be six foot five, 230-pound white guys. Like things could change drastically. We could have – you know, Russell Wilson's running around, you know, like, oh, that, which is, you know, in terms of like, you know, shorter quarterbacks, you know, being in vogue again. Um, so, like, but again, a lot of that's just superficial stuff. Uh, so I think if 
scouting was just more on the surface. Like, what can they do? What can't they do? If you just focus on those sort of things versus just the sort of superficial things that happens way too often, I think uh, we, we'd probably, you know, win a lot more when it comes to evaluation and stuff like that and not get stuck into the patterns that we build for ourselves a lot of times. You know, we kind of get stuck in a certain way of thinking and a certain way of doing things, and we don't see the blind spots in that kind of method. Well, I can attest to, you know, being obviously a Steelers fan, seeing a rut that developed. And then there was an internal slash external shift for a team that had been built. I mean, obviously, Chuck Knoll was one of the people who was an early adopter of cover two and four three. And then they went away from that really while he was still there. I mean, he, you know, LeBeau and, you know, came in. I mean, LeBeau came in a couple of times, actually, had a couple of stints. But while, while Noel was still there, uh, initially as a DB's coach, they eventually promoted up. <clears throat> but he obviously was the person that took them away from 4-3 or helped to take them away from 4-3 and made the move to 3-4. And they were a team that looked for giant man-mountain type 5 techs, preferably guys with, you know, beards and thick necks and long arms and long legs weighed about 300 pounds and were about six foot five and a bunch of really good linebackers two of whom needed to be good at everything and two of them just needed to be able to pass the passes and when they have the right set of guys doing those things and then you drop Casey Hampton in the, in, Hampton in the middle that was a nice little defense and they once were as good if not better than anybody at picking secondary talented and that somehow oh, yeah. all went away I don't know what the hell happened, <laughs> but this went from well, being an, <laughs> you went away an from elite. the formula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look at it like this. Look, like you know, I just talked about what Al Davis wanted the Raiders to be, and then McKenzie comes in. The Raiders are a very Tackerish team. You know, McKenzie yes, comes from I've the Tackerish tree. Like we've got our Aaron Rodgers. We've we got our Jordy Nelson. We've even got our right. We Randall don't have Cobb, Patrick Cobb, you know, but Randall Cobb. We do have our, we Mark do have Cooper. our Devontae Adams. Kind of, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah, we have our West Coast wide receivers. You know, we have a interior offensive line, which is the foundation. It's the foundation for the Packers. You know, all the guys on that inside of that Packer line are good. They're very good, even. Um, the tackle situation, eh, not so much, you know, like it's very much like the Packers situation. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Like the Packers situation. Yeah. <laughs> Defensively a little different. I mean, but it's very Seahawk model now it's well, let's get, uh, you know, again, let's get really, really long corners, you know, really long corners, you know, guys that are, have really, really long arms. I mean, you know, again, Sean Smith, tall, long, you know, David Emerson, not necessarily tall, but really, really long arms. So it's that emphasis now, you know, on defense. It's very Seahawkish. It's very uh, going after, you know, guys that can kind of, you know, play those kind of roles uh, in terms of what they want to do. And they have even hinted at 3-4 defense even. So, which is what the Packers were doing at one point, you know, and, uh, you know, more of a 3-4 
oriented defense when they had DJ Raji and you know all the other sort of guys. Of course, Clay Matthews before he was converted to linebacker, inside linebacker. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, again, patterns. You know, there's a lot of patterns involved with how the Raiders team is built and how the Packers are built. Uh, and what you're seeing with the Steelers, Bill, is you, you're seeing a team that, for whatever reason, uh, decided to not go with the formula that worked before and go do something different. They went, they became more West Coasty, you know, uh, on offense. Uh, they very Packerish, to be honest, in terms of like tackles and eh, yes. interior, eh, yeah. better, you know, in terms of <laughs> inside. Um, and going after wide receivers that are very, you know, West Coasty, you know, Antonio Brown, um, you know, et cetera. Uh, and defense, though, I don't know what you guys are doing about defense. Uh, I, you know, again, uh, I guess cover two, I, I guess is what. Cover two-ish, yes. Love zone. What you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. But they they got away from that. And I think a lot of that is Mike Tomlin's handprint, you know. Um, I, I'm not trying to say the chin, you know, influenced everything and like because you lost them you know bad things are happening i'm just saying that this is a mike thomas hampered obviously you know because he's been head coach there is very much on this team um at least on defense especially so you you have that sort of uh tampa-ish kind of defense now um with with the fact with the fact that as i tell most people the tampa bay buccaneers when they were, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know, when they actually became, uh, you know, Super Bowl champion and everything else like that, uh, they had warrants up. They had, you know, like they had a ridiculous amount of talent on that roster. You know, Derek Brooks, uh, you know, Barber, like there were so many great players on that team uh, in terms of defensively speaking, um, which, Sure, the scheme let them excel, but at the same time, whatever, like if you put Warren Sapp in any other scheme, I think I still think he would have been good, you know. I think if you put a lot of these guys in other schemes, they would have been just fine, you know. Yeah, uh, Derek Brooks, John Lynch, uh, Rondé, I think they all would have been pretty decent. Whatever scheme you want to drop, I think they all would have been okay. Uh, I'm exactly. Agree with you there. And even the Illinois edge rusher, you know, that was there as well. Um that I, oh, I don't think gets enough. Yeah, yeah Simeon Rice. Yeah, I think doesn't yeah. get enough credit uh, even now. So, like, you had all these guys, all this talent there, um, which is why I don't really – I hate to say this, but, like, I don't care what the scheme is, at least with me. Like, I, I do get the sort of fact that you want certain guys to fit a scheme, and there are certain guys who do, but I also feel like great players are going to fit whatever scheme you put them in. You know, if you put Luke Keekley – in any type of scheme, he's going to be Luke Keekley. If you put Ray Lewis in any type of scheme, he's going to be Ray Lewis. Like, um, I just don't really buy into the whole, well, scheme makes everything go. For certain players, it does. For great players, it doesn't really matter. You know, if J.J. Watt was a defensive end, he would have been great. You know, if he was a defensive tackle in a 4-3, he would have, you know, like, it doesn't really matter. J.J. Watt's going to be J.J. Watt. Um, but I think that's, at least with the Steelers, I think that's the big thing is uh, – you went away from the formula, man. You, you uh, now the West Coast formula was a good decision, at least to me, because you know, of course, Ben Roethlisberger is kind of questioning his career right now. But 
you know, you you essentially were like, okay, offensive line wise, we're having issues, so let's let's do this thing. Let's let's try to preserve Roethlisberger's life, and let's go to a scheme that's that's going to get rid of the football faster. And as a result, Roethlisberger can probably play longer because, for the most part, West Coast quarterbacks typically, at least quarterbacks get rid of the football very quickly, are going to have longer lives. Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, you know, like any type of West Coast quarterback you can think of, uh, Brett Favre even, you know, they get rid of the ball a lot quicker than everybody else, and as a result, they can live longer, you know, uh, it's a survival strategy. So that was a good order was very, very good, but did not have, of course, partially because it took him a long time to become a starter, but did not have a 15, 20-year kind of career by stretch. Exactly. But a lot of that was there's a lot of stuff at the beginning. You know, they end up, you know, you know a lot of politics and stuff like that, you know, because it's a small school guy. But, um, right. but yeah, there's there's lots of stuff like that. Don't get me wrong. But, again, I, I think the Steelers – the issue you have, Bill, honestly, is just the transition on offense was good. The transition on defense wasn't good. You changed no. the formula. The formula is 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 uh, the the formula for success that you had um, when you you know went to uh, you know the Super Bowl um, you know, at least early on defensively has gone. So that 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 defense is long still. It would be great. It would be awesome if they kept the offense, which is working right now, uh, with the defense that you had with that formula of defense, if you will. Like, if you went back to that type of defense, that would be good. But I don't think it's coming back. So... (laughs) Uh, as much as that yeah. formula is great, and there's lots of teams that I think, uh, and the thing, other thing too is a lot of that formula really comes back to the coaching as well, you know, uh, you know Dick LeBeau and everything else. So, like, it, there's just certain things you just have to let go, I guess, because it's just not coming back <laughs> and anytime soon. Uh, but I would say that that's the, as we talk about patterns, that's just one thing I'm just saying is, there's lots of teams and coaches in general that, that their entire careers are based on patterns, based on a, a line of thinking and a line of doing things and a strategy for success. And um, there's tons of different strategies for success. I mean, we just kind of mentioned a bunch of them. But, uh, but the, at, the, at the end of the day, sometimes you have to get out of that way of thinking and, and really look at, again, what makes, what makes success, you know, uh, does it really matter? It's it's a lot with like running backs, you know. Everybody wants big running backs, and yet small running backs are about as successful as big running backs. Uh, even in longevity, they typically have about as long as career as big backs. But hey, I want the bigger back because I think a lot, you know, like there's there's lots of line of thinking that we're, again people get stuck in the patterns of thinking, and they don't really want to get out of that line of thinking because of those types of things. And I think it, there's some detriment to it when it comes to those types of things. When, when you don't stop and realize, like the Steelers, that this cover two thing ain't working, maybe we should yeah. maybe we should go back to the 3-4 defense that, you know, that we that we had where we had Casey Hampton and, you know, the really long-arm 3-4 DNs and, uh, you know, 3-4 outside linebacker pass rusher types. So maybe we should go back to that. You know, like maybe we should – 
get back to that. And also getting a, a really good safety as well. That might be another yeah, uh, sort of awesome. thing that would be awesome, you know, increasing the safety play of the team, you know. All right, taking it from bad to no longer bad. Yes, that would be really, really nice. Uh, yeah, so getting back to sort of how this relates to the Senior Bowl, obviously I got to see Mike Tomlin at the Senior Bowl, and there's other, you know, Steeler folk. I mean, they have a fairly large contingent there. And, uh, love if somehow, you know, Cornell is not this way uh, to, to Pittsburgh in, you know, whatever role. Uh, Nickel, maybe one of the outside corners. They want to play him at free safety. That wouldn't hurt my feelings, I guess, either. I think he's capable of doing a lot of different things, but I think he'd be an elite-level nickel corner. If we did want to get back to the old days, you know, you, we talked about Cano. I mean, he he would have to put on, you know, 15, 20 pounds, but it looks like he's got the frame to do that with no problem, I would think. And, I mean, that's that's a guy. People are talking about other guys that put, might project a five technique. If I had to go find a five technique in this class, I might start with that kid and might even almost redshirt him, in essence, I mean, or, you know, give him a few reps, but essentially teach him how to be a five technique, which is super hard to do. Uh, I think people underestimate how difficult a position is to play. It is a position that requires that you be a, a contained player, a pass pressure player. A few people even drop their fives occasionally. I mean, obviously, some yeah. sort of tricky zone they stuff, can do it. you know, tricky yeah, zone blitzes you know, stuff, and, and stuff it. like that. Yeah, I, I'd stay away from that as much as possible, but I guess, you know, you just in case you may want to teach him how to do that Depends if you ever decide to go low. You have to be. Right. As always, it's like Bill Belichick can do that, uh, you know, somebody else, you know, maybe not so much. You know, if you're uh, – <laughs> you really have to be a guy who really knows how that works and, and, and not get – because otherwise you're going to have a touchdown, you know. So uh, it's just one of those types of things, those type of things. If you, if you get cute, you get – if you try to be – you know, try to outsmart offenses, you you bet you better be really good at it. Doesn't say that much, right? Which which like Rex you, Ryan, you know, who yes, did a lot of stuff was pretty. He was able to do that, but but at the very least, he comes from that line of you know, again, from the kitchen sink, you know, at at quarterbacks, you know, kind of <laughs> you know, forty six defense kind of way, but um. But yeah, in, in terms of that sort of thing. But yeah, three four. The best way I kind of explain three four defensive end is you basically have to be as stout as a as a nose tackle, really, because you're having to deal with you know two offensive linemen, even three offensive linemen at a time, and having to absorb those guys, while also having the ability to pass rush like a three tech. Like you're basically a defensive tackle who can do. Uh, who can line up anywhere and do everything um, to be a great one anyway. To be a great 3-4 defensive end, you have to be able to line up everywhere and do every sort of assignment, and not every guy can do that. Um, it's Not everybody can be JJY, but not everybody can even be Brent Kiesel. Even. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, – there's a lot of 
stuff to that position that it is very uh and there but there's also a lot of you know, again when to and when not to you know when do i uh, decide to to make this play, and when do I just let my linebackers make this play? Uh, there's a lot of that too as well, um, which again takes a little bit higher level of uh, uh, football instincts and football intelligence to kind of make those plays. Yeah, decision making, and once again, I think we'll underestimate how important that is in those defensive backs. I mean, obviously, people think about it with quarterbacks in terms of controlling the entire offense and where you go with the ball in terms of running backs. I think people also don't think about it very much, but in making that jump to being a really good pass protector, knowing if you have an actual assigned person to block, if it's, you know, most dangerous inside, if it's, uh, you know, the EMLOS, if he comes, if it's, you know, basically knowing if it's backs on backers, is it, you know, exactly how have you schemed up blocking? And, of course, as you mentioned also, Jim, well, these guys are very often asked to catch the ball more, and I don't think it's at all like coincidence or an accident that the offenses that were left, in fact, all four of the final four offenses were ones that really made good use of throwing the ball to their running backs. Now that I think about it, uh, the Falcons have made a fine art of it, uh, you know, the Patriots, nothing more need be said. They all do it, yeah. Pittsburgh threw the ball to their running backs, particularly when Le'Veon Bell was healthy, quite a deal. Oh, yeah. Quite a weight deal. Well, Le'Veon Bell, you're talking about, you know. So, just in terms of the receiving back, you know. Right. You know, why wouldn't you throw the football to that guy? Uh, I mean, the Packers are semi-exception, unless you consider, well, I guess Montgomery's a running back. So... Right, yeah. So, but Green Bay has some running back things to sort out. Obviously, whatever, whatever the the, the outcome. They have a lot in of terms things of, to sort out. You know, it's you know, funny. Position wise. Right, it's funny how good certain teams can be and still have yawning, large scale, frightening deficiencies in some cases, and still manage to win as many games as some of them do. It's uh, it's a testament to. Well, the players, you know, how hard and how well they play despite maybe yeah. their teammates not and being, coaching. you know. And coaching, right. Yeah. And coaching especially. Um, I mean, it's one thing I was actually going to look into a little bit more is, again, what, what positions matter, you know, uh, like in terms of, you know, what matters the most to winning, um, what situations does a – like, for example, you know, I used to do – well, I still do. I, I used to do metric uh, evaluations in every NFL team. Uh, I did it back in uh, 2015, and the best teams during that year were the Patriots and Seattle Seahawks, and they ended up in the Super Bowl. I did it <laughs> the next year, and it came back the Denver Broncos and the Seattle Seahawks, uh, mainly because the Denver Broncos made all these additions on offense and on defense especially. Like, it was just – Create like they just did a lot of things in free agency to really upgrade depth and everything else like that. And of course, the Seahawks, the Panthers were a like a mid a mid middling team in that they had star players. Cam Newton, obviously, we all know about him. You know, Greg Olson, we all know about him. Uh, you know, the center there. You know, Khalil is is definitely an above average center. Uh, of course, Trey Turner. But then they had those tackles, which are eh. 
they had Luke Keekley, which was great. They had a lot of other defensive players that were very good, but they also had, you know, safety safeties there that were like, eh, like it was a very 50-50 roster, kind of like the Steelers in that, you know, there, there's some really great players that could probably be considered some of the best players in the NFL. Antonio Brown easily can be considered one of the best, you know, wide receivers in the NFL, starting opposite to, you know, question, like, you know, like there's lots of um, disparity there between, you know, the number one guy and then the second guy. Uh, so you're really having to depend on that one individual player for a lot of things. And, that, and the only thing I'm saying is I really wanted to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of like, okay, you know, how teams are built, if you will. You know, is is it more so luck at times, you know, being able to survive the injury bug and keeping the guys, the impact players healthy, and then they end up having their, you know, again, you keep the impact players healthy and then you get the results. Uh, and then, or is it something where it's just a bit of luck, really, you know, just things kind of going your way, or is it also just a combination of coaching? You know, again, Bill Belichick, as we always talk about, is a guy that uh, he could trade away Jamie Collins. He can trade away, you know, Chandler Jones. Uh, be, but you also have to look at who he brought in. You had Chris Long that he brought in. And Chris Long isn't the greatest defensive end ever, but he's a guy that works really well in rotation or the number two rusher. He had... Uh, Jabal Sherrard, who's probably one of the more underrated pass rushers. Like, when he hit the market, I was like, why is nobody talking about this guy? Because <laughs> he's a really good pass rusher. You know, he, he's able to kind of cobble together uh, defensive production. So he's never going to have a star player, but he can get a Julian Edelman. He can get, you know, a lot of guys that can – he can cobble together production and offense and defense. And that's really what makes him great. But obviously not everybody can be that because – you know, again, it takes higher level skill, you know, like it just takes a lot more work, uh, mental work, especially to kind of make that work um, versus like the Falcons who, to me, the Falcons are built very, again, very heavy on individuals, you know, like there's lots of players on the team that aren't really that great, but there's also players that could be considered one of the best, if not the best at the position. Um, in certain areas, uh, or at least close to you know, the first or the second or the third. So, um, I don't know. It's just one of the things I really wanted to dig into is that sort of idea of, like, when you're making a team, it, how, like, what's the best way to make it? Because the biggest thing to me is, is for team. I think the main goal of every team really should be consistency. It really should be every year you're contending for a Super Bowl, every year you're going to the playoffs, every year you're winning, you know. Um, I think everybody, every team would want that, I think, you know. So, like, what does it take to be consistent is kind of the big thing when it comes to team building, and that was the main thing I really wanted to get into um, is, is that sort of thing. And I think I don't think the Steelers are built that way is all I'm trying to say. You know, they're not really built for consistency. They're built for the ball going the right way at times, you know. Um, but I don't know. We'll, but we'll see what happens in the future. But that just is kind of my general read on the Steelers and a couple other teams. Got it. And I know Matt said he might be coming in. Let's see if Matt has joined us yet. Yeah, Colossio. Yeah, yeah, probably next to the rest. 
So we had an idea of sort of who your favorites were. And I'm not asking you to say that these players are necessarily bad, but players that you would be essentially striking from the list, players that you want your team to avoid drafting. Who would be some of the players? And once again, I guess I'm spotlighting you know, the guys again who are at the senior bowl. Who are some of the prospects you would be advising your team to avoid? Selecting? Okay. Uh, Chad Kelly. But with Chad Kelly is probably the easy one, but film-wise, there there's a lot of stuff there that is intriguing, but ultimately, character-wise, I just can't get over it, man. I Just too much of a hothead, too much. When he was at the Senior Bowl and just watching on, again, I, well, I, I didn't actually get a chance to go out there just because I had a lot of stuff this week I had to deal with, unfortunately, but just watching the film of the practices, Chad Kelly looked bored, disinterested, you know, not locked in. I don't know. Maybe he didn't drink enough coffee. But I don't know. But he just didn't look very – compared to Jeff Risen, Jeff Risen, when I saw him at the Shrine game, and from the, from the Senior Bowl, he looked like a, a kid at a candy store, you know, <laughs> like a guy that was just like – I'm happy to be here. You know, you can just tell based on his body language that, like, I want to be here. And you could see that on football players. Chuck Kelly was like, okay, I'm here. My agent said I got to come here. So, yeah, all right, throw the ball around. All right, stand over here. All right, I'll stand, all right, I'll stand over here. You know, like, it was just a lot of that to him. On top of, the, you know, the smoking weed stuff and, you know, the almost – punching out somebody at a high school football game and like there's lots of stuff there uh, that we already have Connor Cook we don't need another one of those so um, just lots of stuff there that doesn't really you know stuff like that I think another guy that I would just again I'm not like opposed to I just don't really see what the big deal is when it comes to him as a player is, oh yeah, Chris Wormley at Michigan. Now, he's he's just one of those guys where like, sure, I think he will probably test physically well. Like I think he might test well as an athlete. He does show flashes of explosiveness on film, uh, but he just doesn't produce, you know, he doesn't put it all together on, you know, on game day and um, just lots of times where he just, he's just not winning, you know, uh, at all. So I just don't really see what the big deal is with him uh, other than he played at Michigan and he, and again, he does have size and does all these other sort of things. I just don't really see anything that's really there. And especially with the fact this price tag, it's easily going to be a guy. I just know he's probably going to go day two, which is way too high for me when it comes to a player like that. So I, I would I would have to pass on that. Uh, and then the last player is Carlos Watkins from Clemson. Now, he easily is a guy that they, as always, it was kind of like if, if Carlos Watkins gets mentioned you know, on the senior bowl coverage, take a drink because it was constantly like, okay, let's, let's see Carlos Watkins make a play. And then he didn't make a play. Let's, let's go in on Carlos Watkins and see what he's going to do. And then he didn't do anything. It was a lot of, 
just kind of waiting on him to do something and him not delivering and not, and not doing what he needed to do to really stick out. And that was a lot like his film. Uh, I've been not a very big fan of his film. He hasn't been a tremendously productive player at any point in his career uh, from a market share perspective. Uh, and just film wise, hasn't really been a very productive player. Uh, hasn't, hasn't really, done much to really justify him even being at the senior bowl this year, other than the fact that he played at Clemson. So, um, I don't know. There was, he just one of those guys that I just, in general, just don't like his film. I don't think there's a lot of potential there based on, you know, the sort of longitudinal data kind of stuff. Um, in general, I just think the price tag is way too high. You know, a lot of this just comes down to like where I'm going to have to draft a guy. Uh, you know, based on the amount of buzz he has and how teams, you know, view these guys. And when it comes to a guy like Carlos Watkins, uh, when it comes to a player like Chris Wormley, I just have to pass on those types of guys uh, and, and go after guys that I think would be better value at those parts of the draft. Yes, right. I mean, you have a coupon, use the coupon. Why, post, why pay full price? And it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Joe Mixon, the guys, where they go in the in light of, you know, some of the things they've done. Wow. Well, apparently he lied. You know, he said he got a first-round grade. That, that was a lie. <laughs> yeah. Lie detector determined that was a lie. So you got that on top of that. So not only do you have a guy – who, you know, punched a white woman, um, which it doesn't matter if she was white. It could have been any color. It could have been an Asian girl. Not only that, but yet on top of the anger issue and on top of the fact that he's lying about stuff that he really shouldn't be lying about, uh, you, know, you know, there's a lot of extra stuff there, you know, that just keeps happening. Decisions keep being made that are wrong decisions, is all I'm trying to say. So I don't think you would take a guy who continually makes bad decisions, you know, continuously. But that just seems to be the mo right now. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm wondering. So obviously he's not the only. I mean, yeah, on the same team you've got D.D. Westbrook, who, you know, I. I think it's a great prospect, and I have to sort of try to reconcile his past, you know, with his NFL future. But there's a lot of, I don't want to say a lot. There's a few different places where it's known without people consciously knowing, you know, that there's a player, you know, sometimes a couple of players who are doing problematic things with or to, you know, women in their in their lives and, you know, the smart ones and the best of them get help for it and try to stay away from that kind of thing. And then there's others who, you know, go with it, enjoy it even in some cases. So it really to see how young Mr. Mixon explains, talks through uh, the incident and how he's behaved and comported himself since then. So now it's 
you do have East West Run game, NFLPA game, and of course Senior Bowl numbers. In terms of what you do, have you seen any surprises? Any data that you've gotten in the last few days been different from what you thought you might receive or what you might see? Hmm, surprising stuff. The only thing I'll say is surprising. Uh, this is a much taller uh, line class than I expected. Like I didn't expect Little Johnson to be six foot three, but he is six foot three. I didn't expect Dan Skipper to be six foot nine, and he's legit six foot nine. Like hasn't really been that much lying when it comes to weights, and a lot of times they're lighter than what they were listed at. Um, you know, Devion Smith was. Was listed at about 220. Uh, well, I mean, some of them are lighter. You know, like in the U.S., it was like 220-ish, and he's listed at like 228. But for the most part, a lot of the heights and weights haven't really been that bad or different um, from perspective, other than that this is a really tall offensive line class uh, uh, in general, uh, which as a data guy means that there's a lot more potential upside in the class. Uh Again, potential upside. So take that with a grain of salt. But uh, I, w- I would say that, that that was kind of surprising to me. Is, is uh, in general, there was a lot of guys uh, that really came in and hit certain thresholds, um, height wise, and everything else like that. I think the tight end class. I feel a lot better about it. I'll just say that much. Maybe it could be the All Star Game effect, but guys like Eric Saber from Drake, for example. Is a guy that I, I liked on film, but it was highlights. You know, and that's that's all there was, was highlight film. So went down to the shrine, performed well. So like I, I feel a little bit better about the tight end class than I initially did, uh, especially getting you know more information on guys. So yeah, I, I would just say stuff like that. Really, um, I mean, my biggest takeaway about the All Star game so far is uh, I think it's a fairly strong class of seniors. You know, I think there's a lot of seniors that are going to be really good players and we shouldn't put so much emphasis on, I know every year we put a lot of emphasis on the underclassmen, but I think in general, um, you know, I think there's a lot of really talented seniors that deserve our attention, you know, over just getting guys that are young. Cause again, being young doesn't always equal talent, you know? So uh, I would say that, that's the biggest takeaway. There's a lot more talent than I initially thought, especially from small school. Um, a lot of guys, you know, some of the Canadian guys, Anthony Auclair, for example, is another one of the Canadian guys that really showed his stuff at the Shrine. So um, there's, there's a lot of, again, Chad Williams too. So there, there's a lot of positives, I guess, to go forward when it comes to the draft based on the All-Star games. Excellent. Well, as I mentioned, some of my particular takeaways, particularly if I were coming back to meet with my superiors in Pittsburgh, I mentioned a couple of the, the wide receivers. Well, I mean, maybe a wide receiver somewhere, but I meant cornerbacks slash safety, whatever, defensive back. As the week went on, a lot of the, at least some, of the Australians who, Asians, who got there, a lot of them made themselves home pretty quickly without asking and tiring, being told, et cetera, you know, where where to go, what to do. And then you've got to look at the 
I think this running back class, I mean, obviously people know the names of some of the big underclass running backs, but I think this is a pretty darn good class without maybe, you know, one thing about those sort of second, third-tier guys, they're not as big. They're not a bunch of huge guys, but there's a lot of really terrific all-around running backs. I think Edo Smith actually uh, does a lot of things well. I think Octavius Mathers does a lot of things well. James Flanders is most likely, like there's some of the guys that I mentioned, will find his way into someone's camp as a third down back. He might not even get drafted, but I think he'll stick around. There's a lot of really interesting, fun. Leonard Tillery from Southern, who I think was at NFLPA, really good running back. Uh, forgetting some more people, but there's a lot of good running backs in this class. And, you know, everyone's found one to fall in love with. It looks like some people love Devion Smith, some people you know, fell in love with Henry Miller. I mean, there's a few different ones that, you know, I know people uh, look towards or whatever. But I, I think that that running back class is starting to stem the tide, turn the tide, whatever tide, uh, in terms of showing people that there's there's good players who amongst uh, the fourth year of their collegiate career, there are guys who finished college. And, well, actually, some of the three-year three guys finished as well, but you know, obviously the vast majority finished. Uh, it's just good to get an idea of who, you know, who likes whom. And the other thing you know, sort of I've noticed regarding the class and, and looking, obviously, on the, uh, the defensive side, a lot of detail work, obviously, went into the stuff that you've done. But the, you know, obviously you're not evaluating, you know, scheme and things like that. For quarterbacks, you might see how long it takes them to learn the majority of the offense or learn a particular set of concepts and things like that. I mean, you know, I, I think leadership's good. I, I, I'm i super jazzed about players who read. And then there's football stuff, but I think guys who read in general you know, at least a couple of books per month and again keeps your brain agile and things like that. Uh, other players that I, I'm excited about or glad to see did well, things like that. I mean obviously Taiwan Taylor I've been talking about. Obviously I would be interested to see how, you know, schools like East Carolina and East and Louisiana Tech soldier on after they lose if not all then many of their guys and have to sort of figure out a way to try to get it down from that point forward. But let me just take a look at a couple more things. So, obviously, the next big everybody all in one place, all at the same time, all together now, um, thing that will come up will be the combine. And that is another super important part of your process, Tim. Tell me what the combine means for you, uh, which will be the next thing on the itinerary, and what you do with what you extract, you know, and how you use it. Well, the combine is big because it really, to me at least, it gives a very important perspective on uh, the type of athlete they are and the type of scheme that might be the better fit. Uh, You know, I've done a lot of work. A lot of the reasons why I do a lot of pattern matching, um, instead of just, making athletic score uh, to figure out who's the most athletic or who has the best measurables, 
looking at each measurable individual individually because uh, there's lots of players who may not test well in one particular area but test better in another area. So one guy may have not very good speed but have very good change of direction. Another guy may be very fast but not very explosive. And a lot of times those really can give you perspective on is this a guy who can play in the ZBS scheme? Is this a guy that can play in a power scheme? Uh, is this a is can this corner play zone? Uh, would he be a better fit at you know uh, or like could he be a man corner? You know would he be a better fit at zone uh, or uh, safety wise? You know uh, in terms of figuring out okay what type of safety he can be uh, and and those sort of perspectives. So, I mean, it, it really focuses mainly on those types of things. Um, all the other stuff is pretty much done. You know, the production stuff's already done. The age stuff's already done for most of the guys, all the underclassmen. Uh, so, really, it's just getting to the combine. The combine is really important in general. I would say it's mostly important uh, because – most of the guys that go to the combine are going to get drafted, you know, like a good portion of those guys are, are going to. So um, it's important to pay attention to, I would say in general, like everybody that gets invited to the combine, you should see if you are doing this seriously, you know, everybody who goes to the combine and gets invited should be, you should watch their tape because very good chance they're going to be uh, drafted uh, or taken in a certain spot because of that. So I would say that's, that's actually a little bit more important to me is, uh, you know, because sometimes the NFL does get it right. Sometimes the NFL might invite a guy to the combine that I haven't seen, and I see his film, and there's a lot of positives there. Um, and that's kind of another aspect of the combine is is uh, the guys that get invited, making sure to kind of focus in on hone in those guys that get invited because, like it or not, those are guys that are going to get lots of opportunities. And, and I just find it a good way, all right, these are – I find it a good way of kind of going, all right, these are the guys that are going to get opportunities. So let's see if they get that opportunity, are they going to make the most of it? Are they going to be successful if they're given that opportunity, which is kind of a a big part of what I do when it comes to metrics and evaluation. Got it. And when a guy changes physically, Let's stick with senior bowl. So if a guy who shows up and he's, you know, 211 pounds in the senior bowl and he's five pounds or six pounds heavier or conversely five pounds, six pounds, seven pounds lighter, do you have a formula you use to sort of account for when a guy is changing physically or do you just sort of look at the numbers, just, you know, look at the guy and, sort of see how he hits against certain pass thresholds, things like that? Well, I mean, in general, um, I just look, you know, to see, again, are are they are they so light that there's never been a player to play the position at that, at that weight or at that height? I mean, that's the big thing to me. Um, there's not a lot of five-foot-six running backs running around, you know. So, um, but for the most part, those guys – don't really get much love from the NFL anyway. So, like, um, in general, you don't have to really worry about that a lot. But I would say for the most part, it's really just that. Now, there are cases 
like Billy Brown from California PA at the Shrine, he came in at 6'3", 254 pounds, uh, which is, that's a H-back tight end, you know, um, not a wide receiver. So there are cases where, like, a guy will be a certain size, and I just go, he, that's the position he's going to work. Now, of course, the question becomes, can he play that position? Uh, and that that's definitely a, a legit question to ask, you know, in the evaluation, you know, can he, you know, what the, and then you just have to go back to, okay, what does he do well? What things will translate at that position? But for the most part, that's really all I focus on uh, is um, do they hit the thresholds? Most of the time, the thresholds are really not that hard to hit. You know, again, we're talking getting above five percentile is really not that hard to do. Um, you know, getting, uh, it's not even above average. It's just getting over five percentile. So um, for the most part, uh, I would say if a guy does come in and, and, and he wait, and he basically is a tight end, or if he comes in and he's a wide receiver, then I'm, I'm really going to be thinking about that player playing that position and not really, you know, not to say I'm, I am going to worry a little bit, but at the very least, I, I worry a little bit, uh, I would say that's the biggest thing is, is is if a guy does come in and he he doesn't really fit the size profile for that position, I will think about him at the other position and, and think about the types of things that he has to have to make the transition to that position. Okay, so let's revisit. Well, you just mentioned it. Uh, we have some very small tight ends in this class, as you mentioned. If a guy wants to make that switch, what does he need to be physically to move from playing tight end where you at least there's some expectation uh, that you block at least most of the time, there's that expectation, to wide receiver and then vice versa. If a guy's doing the exact opposite, if someone looks at Ricky Seals-Jones and says, you're a tight end, I'm not 100% he's a a wide receiver yet, but... uh, but if somebody looks at Ricky Shields Jones and says, I think you're a tight end, but strapped him, we can make him bigger and tougher or whatever. Tell me what markers, what things tell you this person can actually do that. Well, it it's really looking at size and height. Uh you know, tight end is a position that has a variety of sizes. In general, the high upside guys, at least the guys that have been really successful in the last 15 years, uh, are guys that have been six foot five to six foot six, 260 pounds or more. Um, the lightest, I think, was actually Tony Gonzalez, who was about 250-ish when he came out. But he, but he did have the height and the, and the, you know, the frame at least to put on more weight as he got as he you know got older, which is true. Uh, but if, if there is a guy who, like Evan Ingram or, or, or whatever you want to call it, he did technically hit the threshold for H-back tight end. Um, you know, when you watch the film on him, he's really more of a big slot, you know, wide receiver, which I'm okay with. I mean, again, I, I, we always decry the tight end position, Bill, you know, in terms of like they're not great blockers anymore, which is true. I mean, they're more shielding guys than really blocking. Um, but for the most part, that's really just how I, that's really just how I feel about the position. Uh, if Ricky Sills Jones comes in and, and uh, he's six foot four and 230 pounds, 
that's a wide receiver, you know. Um, that's not really a tight end. Uh, there's, there actually is some basis. Like the lightest for a tight end, uh, who at least was a starter, was, and if I actually check my sheet, was 228 pounds, uh, which is the lightest uh, for a tight end. And that's a starter. That's not even like a, you know, a really special guy. So, um that would weigh heavily. Like if he comes in and he's less than 228 pounds, uh, then I would really not even view him as a wide receiver uh, or a tight end, excuse me. So that's kind of the thing when I say about perspective, you know, range of possibilities. That's a lot of what the measurable stuff kind of gives you is can this guy play tackle? Can this guy play guard? Can this guy play safety, cornerback, et cetera? You know, those types of things gives you kind of perspective for those types of, uh, you know, ideas about the position and what they can fill and stuff like that. Hmm. And another position switch you're going to hear about the governor already is guys who played cornerback, you know, if not their entire careers, at least a large portion of it, and have played either no safety or very little safety. Same, same question, or very similar question what I, I just asked in terms of, you know, who uh, who has to hit or what has to hit? What are the numbers that have to be in place for a guy to be able to make that switch? And, of course, for the most part, it's usually cornerback free safety. Of course, the, one of the few examples I can think of where it was the other way around was, of course, uh, the uh, off-injured, uh, not often, you're sorry, he's one of the few healthy players, actually, amongst the secondary pieces for Green Bay with experience right now. But just tell me about what things, once again, should be there to give you the best chance of being successful in finding an actual projectable position that, uh, person at that position, who legitimately can make the move to safety or in converse, the opposite. person who's played the safety is making a successful transition to corner. What are the, the markers? What are the things needed to do that? Well, for the most part, um, free safety is kind of free game. Um, it's the one position where there isn't a particular height for it. Uh, you know, you could be 5'9", you could be 5'10", you could be 6 foot, you could be 6 foot 1, you could have short arms, you could have like Free safety in general at, at, at that position is one where there's a wide variety of possibilities of successful outcomes. Strong safety is a little bit different. Strong safety, you're looking for guys that are bigger, you know, guys that are more closer to 215 pounds or more. Um, and in particular, high-quality strong safeties are guys that had at least 31-inch arm length, um, which I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, these guys are – kind of mini linebackers, you know, like that's, so So the size really kind of adds into that kind of perspective, at least in terms of like a true, true strong safety, a cam chancellor, uh, you know, uh, those types of uh, Sean Taylor, you know, guys that we really think of as like really crazy, impactful kind of strong safeties. Those guys have a certain physique, a certain type of build to them. Um, they're built more like a tank than uh than a very fluid, smooth kind of guy. So I would say th- those are the big things. 
in reality, the one thing I will say is that uh, cornerback is the one where the arm length is like the end-all, be-all, at least when it comes to all-pro stuff. At safety, not so much. You know, it's, it's there's a little bit less – there should be more less emphasis on size at safety uh, versus cornerback because the outcomes haven't really favored taller safeties in general, uh, except for strong safety types. So um, that's the one thing I'll – I'd say about safety is I think mean, there should be more emphasis on uh, a lot like quarterback. Uh, there should be less emphasis on like size and more emphasis on, uh, you know, how they actually play and, and, you know, those types of things.
see. Did Matt get to us yet? Matt Crocho? Matt and Matt? Matthew? We made an eye on Matt. Hope you'll be able to hop on. So, looking forward to the combine. Once again, cross checks on things like height, weight, speed, all that good stuff. Obviously, I look to see for guys who do win with explosiveness, or that's what they look they've been winning with. How do they do in terms of things like your vertical short shuttle um, and uh, uh, broad jump? And obviously, for speed, guys, you look at the 40 and uh, I guess to a slightly lesser extent, recone, which sort of brings some bendiness into it. And then, you know, just once again, for some guys, uh, how they actually measured up physically, you know, in terms of things like height, weight, obviously, and things like that. And, uh, and the other thing, I just mentioned, Joe, uh, for the most part, a lot of non seniors have the senior role that they look for. So, that's it. Uh, we'll do it again in a week. Uh, I was hoping Matt could join us, but I guess he did get hung up. I do want to thank Trevor uh, Sikama. He did join us. It's terrific. I want to thank also Tim Alexander, who, uh, as always, did some great stuff and had a lot of insight. And then also, uh, we did have uh, Christian Davis. So I thank all of the above for their time. Their attention, please, Monday.